You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone from Buenos Aires. My guest today is Razib Khan. Razib is a geneticist, blogger at Gene Expression, and a brown pundit. Hi, Razib. Hey, how's it going? Good. Razib is coming to us from Austin, Texas. Is that correct? Yes, I am recording from Austin, Texas. It's a cold day. Um, that's wonderful. I'd like to... Um, so. My followers on Twitter had a number of questions for Razib, and I think it might be a nice way to begin the podcast to just leap straight into some of those questions. And Razib, I wanted to ask you about the origins of the peoples of India. So um, mm-hmm. can you tell us something about what genetics tells us about ancient and more recent Indian history? So, for example, the Indo-Aryans, the caste system. Can you give us a bit of a rundown? Mm -hmm. And can you tell Mm -hmm. us uh, what the political implications are and why some of this material has been politically controversial? Yeah, yeah. I can definitely do the genetics um, pretty well. The political stuff uh, I can do too, but that's stuff I've kind of learned as I go along, uh, because of the feedback that I've gotten, um, especially from Indians. So I actually have a, I have a, a podcast called The Insight, where I've actually got two episodes um, about India. So people want to go on iTunes or um, just go on Libsyn, they can look it up. And um, if they want to know more, they can, they can check that out. Or they can just, you know, Google uh, my name and India Genetics, and there should be some articles that come up. Sure, but, I'll, um, I'll put those into the show notes for anybody who okay, wants yeah. further reading, but I think it would be nice to give us a as straightforward a rundown as possible. So this isn't my field, and I sometimes find you a little hard to um, understand. In fact, Razib, you are, there are many people on Twitter who deliberately try to make me feel stupid, and you're the only one who actually succeeds <laughs> on a regular basis without trying. English is the second language I learned, so you know maybe it's it's uh, I'm not a native speaker. Maybe that's what's going on. Oh, really? What's your native language? Oh, uh, Bengali. It's the first oh, language. I, I th- it's the first language I learned. Right. I thought your Bengali was um, fairly rudimentary. Um, was I was I yes. wrong about that? No, you're right. But it's the first language I learned. Ah. So English is my second language, technically. Right. Well, I think that's the same for me. So I also have that excuse um, because I learned uh, Gujarati as a child. Um, okay. And uh, my Guju is beyond rudimentary. It's uh, very bad. <laughs> um, I mean, just out of curiosity, I'll, I'll get to the question, but can you read? No, okay. I cannot. Yeah, I mean, obviously, clearly I can read in English, but I can't read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't yeah, yeah. read in no, Gujarati script. <laughs> 
Yeah, I can't read in Bengali, so that that really like freezes me out. So I'm um, back to the question. So basically, um, you know, you can start this going back hundreds of years or thousands of years. So um, Indians, when um, they were uh, mentioned by Chinese or Greeks like Herodotus, one thing that's salient about them is Indians have brown skin. So um, that's the first thing that we know about the people of India. They're brown people, right? Um, Herodotus said that specifically the people of South India look like Ethiopians, but they do not have woolly hair. So Ethiopians mm. is a generic term for black Africans for the Greeks. Mm. The, people of no- the people of North India, which by North India, he meant the Indus River Valley, um, look like Egyptians. So their skin is brown, but not as brown as the people of South India. So even the ancient peoples noticed certain patterns within South Asia that were already present 2,500 years ago. Um, the people of, uh, you know, in, in the Chinese records, there is some mention of India mostly because uh, that's where the Buddha is from. Um, and, you know, Indians are people from the West and they're also, their their coloring is mentioned, right? So we already know that Indians are somewhat different. By the time um, we have a lot of records of India, it's actually the Muslims. Um, you know, uh, I think Al-Biruni was the first person known to have done an ethnography of India. And he mentions various things about Indians that And when was that? Us. When did he do uh, this? I believe it it was in the 900s, so the 10th century. Um, I think uh, Muhammad Muhammad Al Ghazni was uh, his patron, actually. So mm. you know he has he has that connection. Um, in any case, he mentioned that Indians, you know, they believe in reincarnation and they have a caste system and they have their own philosophical system. And he also mentioned that you know they're very dark, they're black. So um, you know that's how the Muslims often describe the people of India. And as we come into the modern period, um, you know, there's several centuries of, of Muslim rule where you have two groups of Muslims and, um, you know, the ruling class tended to be Turkic or Persian. And so they look different. They call themselves white Muslims, um, whites. And then the natives were blacks, whether they're Muslim or Hindu, you know, if they're going to call them by a color appellation. And then by the time the Europeans come, they see a system where there's a caste system. Most people are brown. There's gradations in skin color. There's these West Asians that are light-skinned, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the time when Europe has science and it's starting to develop taxonomies. And they're trying to figure out how the different Indian groups fit into all this. Because obviously, Indians are not as dark as sub-Saharan Africans. And their facial features, their mean, as you might say, in, a, in an older way, uh, do not resemble sub-Saharan Africans. On the other hand, they're quite clearly not Europeans or even West Asians, um, by and large. Um, Immanuel Kant actually did an anthropology in the um, 18th century where he mentioned specifically that in India, um, Parsis are white. So Europeans were actually very particular about noticing differences, right? Mm. So they knew these these sorts of um, peculiarities of the ethnography of India, that some groups were lighter skinned. The Parsis, you know, it was already pretty much understood that they were probably from Iran because of their religion. And they looked like Iranian people, by and large. They didn't look like Indian people who are brown skin, you know, of the brown race. So this is the context we're coming into the 18th century. As the 19th century proceeds, they discover, I mean, the late 18th century, they discover that the Sanskrit language is clearly related to ancient Greek and ancient Latin because the intellectuals and the civil servants of the period were classically educated. The ones that went to India, um, you know, or studied India realized that the you know, religious language of India, Sanskrit, is clearly related to sans- uh, is clearly related to these ancient European languages. And in fact, anyone who speaks the Indo-Aryan language can see the similarities with 
English or French. And if you listen to, I don't know what your experience is. If I listen to Farsi, I have a very weird experience because I always feel like I should understand it. And I pick out a few words. So among the Indo-European languages, the connection between Iranian languages and Indo-Aryan languages is so close that it's obvious that they only separated, say, like three or 4,000 years ago. Mm. You know, I mean, it's, it's, you can tell just by listening that the Iranian languages are very similar to the Indo-Aryan languages if you're a speaker of either. Okay. Um, um, well, yeah. I heard that Avesta is very similar to, has a lot of similarities with Sanskrit. So Avesta yeah, well, is the old, mm-hmm, for, mm-hmm. For, you, you probably know this, but for people who are listening, Avesta is a form of ancient Persian, which is the language in which the Zoroastrian religious texts are written. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And since Avesta, uh, that language, Avesta, and Sanskrit, uh, they're old, they're ancient, they're they're somewhat fossilized, right? So they're not evolving. Um, mm. If you can think of languages in a relationship like a family tree genetically, they separate at a given time and they build up differences. There's actually not that much time separating them. So that would be one reason that they are similar because let's say just for hypothetical purposes, the um, ancient Indo-Iranian tribes started diverging and separating around like four to 5,000 years ago. So there'd only be like, you know, 500 to maybe 1500 years separating Sanskrit and Avestan by that period. And so it could be similar to the relationship between, say, Romanian and Spanish. They're very Mm. different. But anyone that, you know, is Romanian or Spanish can tell that the languages are similar. Right. Right. So we have this we have this situation where philologists um, are seeing these similarities between Indian languages and European languages, ancient European languages, languages of high civilization. And then simultaneously in the 19th century proceeds, um, you know, what we would call today scientific racism is emerging, which is positing that Europeans are the highest race. And I'm obviously simplifying this um, and that they brought civilization to other peoples. So the earlier linguistic inferences, which were not racially fraught or coded at all, are synthesized with this biological concept of racial hierarchy and so during the colonial period, there developed a theory that the Aryans invaded India and that these were blonde European warriors from the steppe who uh, conquered the, the dark native peoples and brought them the gifts of civilization and eventually were assimilated and absorbed into the local population. So that sometimes when you see an Indian person that looks more like a European, that's possibly the relic of that. But, um, you know, the theory is basically the British are just, you know, the relatives or descendants of these ancient Aryans. And so there was some connection to colonialism and divide and rule. So um, these questions, they have some relevance for geopolitics, especially within South Asia. But, you know, when it comes to the geneticists, to be entirely frank, if you don't live in India, uh, this is just an intellectual question. Mm, and, mm. Uh, you know, India is fascinating because there's a lot of Indians, there's a lot of genetic variation. And so a lot of our tools can discover things very easily. And I will tell you, um, going back, say, 10 years, when I started looking at the question really closely, and maybe even earlier, um, you would notice weird things in the data that don't make sense or didn't quite make sense in the way we understood the world then. So if you do some genetic plots of Europeans and West Asians and East Asians and all these other groups, and you do Indians, Indians are in the middle between East Asians 
and West Asians, but they're closer to West Asians and Europeans on the whole than they are to East Asians. But there's a range. So people from Southern and especially Eastern India are shifted more towards East Asians. People from Northwest India are shifted more towards West Asians. Some of this could just be geography. But the range is really, really large. And people started noticing that the range is not just geography. It's also in terms of caste. So people lower down on the caste ladder, traditionally what you call the caste ladder, um, are closer to East Asians. While people that are higher up on the caste ladder are closer to West Asians and Europeans. Now, considering what I just said earlier... That's really, was, that's really interesting. I never heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is an old finding. This is an old finding that goes back to you know, 15, 20 years when the first genetic studies um, that could ask these questions were posed. And so the caste hierarchy was actually, you can plot it on a distribution, and it's just relatedness to West Asia and Europe. And this is, this is actually true. I mean, I can replicate the data. In, I can re- replicate these results in like two minutes. I have enough data on my computer right now that I'm talking to you on, right? Um, and so, I mean, this is pretty robust. But we didn't have a really good understanding of like how this had come to be. Like perhaps there was an Aryan invasion, perhaps not. Within anthropology and history, there has been a tendency until recently to not believe that there were invasions and mass migrations because that was just such an old-fashioned way of thinking. So really, most people didn't really um, address it or consider it. But um, there's um, uh, a lab at, in Boston um, that in 2009 published a paper where they, they looked at hundreds of thousands of genetic positions in the human genome, as opposed to earlier stuff I'm talking about looked at like hundreds, or maybe just the Y chromosome, which is passed through men, and the mitochondrial DNA, which is passed through women. They looked at hundreds of thousands of genetic positions. And they concluded that all Indian populations are a mix of, of at least two ancient groups. And that the position on the relatedness to East Asians or Europeans and West Asians is a function of what that mix is between these two groups. And the two groups are called Ancestral North Indians and Ancestral South Indians. Ancestral North Indians are very similar to West Asians and Europeans. There's very little difference. Ancestral South Indians are not very similar to East Asians, but they are more like East Asians than they are to West Europe, to Europeans or West Asians. The closest population to them today are the people of the Andaman Islands, who probably separated from them 35, 40,000 years ago. So this population does not exist um, in anything like pure form was the theory back then. So when this came out, Obviously, this caused a huge controversy, and they could not really establish the time period when the mixture occurred. So if the mixture occurred during the Pleistocene, you know, more than 10,000 years ago, during the Ice Age, all this stuff about Aryans, none of that makes sense. Okay? Um, Mm. So, Mm. Because they wouldn't have been able to get across. You mean well, the route would have well, been obstructed, or yeah, that is true. But I mean, also, like you can't tell linguistic relatedness like that. That, that, that would have been way too ancient to explain the Indo-European languages, right? It's just way okay. too yeah. It's way too ancient of an event to like have any relevance to all these arguments that I'm talking about that date to the 19th and 20th century. Okay, and so initially they didn't have the ability to like detect when the mixture happened. Later they found out. Okay, and that's like. The past 10 years, like, I mean, if you want me to, like, go into detail about that, they found out 
they found out more and more and more. And basically the rub is that today it does look like there were migrations from the Northwest into South Asia, one from what is today Iran, um, probably farmers really early that mixed with the indigenous hunter-gatherers, and then later probably Indo-Aryans from the steppe that mixed with the people um, that were already there that were a mix of farmers and the indigenous hunter-gatherers, and so um, probably the Indus Valley people they mixed with. And so you have like multiple mixtures in here among South Asians. And someone like me, I'm Bengali, um, 15% of my ancestry is East Asian, and that probably happened 1,500 years ago, and nobody knows why or how. It's just, it's really clear in the genetics. Um, and if you look at enough Bengalis, I think it's pretty clear to most Indians. But um, so, the in, so the invasions, wait a moment, were from Persia and from the steppes. So where does the Western European component come in? Well, the Western European component um, comes in because uh, uh, Europe itself was invaded um, by people from the steppe who transformed Northern Europe. Most of the ancestry of Northern Europe, um, depending on where you're talking about, whether it's Eastern Europe or the far West of Europe, but really uh, most of the ancestry of Northern Europe was replaced about 3,000 to um, 2,900 years ago. It depends on where, right? So in Poland, the farmers were mostly replaced 4,000 years, 4,000, no, 5,000 years ago. Yeah, 5,000 years ago, sorry. And then, you know, in Scandinavia, it took a little longer for them to get there. But basically, with mass replacements in Northern Europe from people from the steppes, people from the Volga steppe, probably. Um, they're called the Yamna culture. Later, they were succeeded by the Corded Ware. These are the same cultures that probably led to the Sintashta culture and the Adenovo complex, which is what traditionally people have identified with the Indo-Iranians. So the reason that there's similarities with Europeans is that both Europe and the Indian subcontinent have been invaded by people in the past 5,000 years, and massive admixtures have happened to create new peoples in both of these subcontinents in Eurasia. That did not exist 6,000 years ago. Ah, okay. And I think that I remember reading or hearing that um, the Indo-Aryan, I don't know if it was the Indo-Aryan invasion, but that was uh, mostly men. Yeah, um, I mean, it is depends, that correct? Yeah, it depends on how you look at it. But I mean, it was definitely biased. It looks, it looks very, very likely it was biased towards men. Um, the evidence for Europe is actually also there, although it's a little weaker. But the European um, you know, invasion. I mean, we could call it an invasion, a migration. I don't know what you want to call it. I think invasion is mm. good because traditionally when one group of men replaces another group of men, it's not done peacefully. But hey, maybe it could have been different 4,000 years ago. I don't know. You know? Well, the fact that it's mostly men seems to suggest a military hey man, you're campaign. Gen I mean, you're, you're gender maybe. essentializing. You know, there could have been some like really, <laughs> really peaceful men and like the local men decided, hey, we're not going to have any sons or daughters. We're just going to give you our daughters. And that's just, that's what they did. But yes, so there were men that arrived. So my Y chromosome, um, R1A Z93, um, is very, very common across South Asia. I think, I mean, depending on how you calculate it, it's somewhere between 15 to 30% of South Asian males carry this. Okay. This Y chromosome looks like to have exploded demographically about 4,000 years ago. My particular sub-branch is found in South Asia in Central Asia and in the Altai region of Western Mongolia and China, okay? Mm. Um, mm. Ancient DNA has discovered this lineage in one place in Europe on the Volga steppe 3,800 years ago, okay? 
um, mm. in, in um in the the Srubna, the Srubna culture. Now, there's another branch of R1A, um, a brother lineage is how we would say it. That's very, very common in Poland and in Russia and in parts of Central Europe. Okay, and that is uh, I think it's two eight Z two eight two eight two. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I think that's what the lineage is. These two lineages separated really recently in time, within the last four to five thousand years. Um, the implication there is that groups of of men, of related men, paternal lineages, perhaps we could even say gotras, I don't know what word you want to use, um, expanded in Eurasia about 4,000 years ago, and they replaced a lot of the local male population and changed the genetic character of many areas of the world, right? So, you know, Lithuania 6,000 years ago or 7,000 years ago was totally different than it is now or than it was 3,000 years ago. Most of the transition seems to have happened four to 5,000 years ago. South Asia, totally different. Someone like me, like my genetic characteristics did not exist uh, 4,500 years ago. Like literally did not exist. Like I'm, I'm, a, mm. new, I'm a new mm. product of this, of this mixture. And in fact, like I, someone like me probably didn't exist 2,000 years ago because the East Asian that is a substantial fraction of my ancestry um, probably at least as much as the Aryan, um, is is also very, very new, right? So we're talking a lot of recent mixture, a lot of migration and movement, and um, that's just a new paradigm, and we're still trying to deal with it. Now in India, I mean, the politics, the problem is the out-of-India theory has become really popular among nationalists, even though a lot of nationalists privately don't believe in it. But there's not can really... You just out, can yeah. you just outline the out-of-India... Uh, theory, what that is for my well, listeners. Well, so you know, um, some Hindu nationalists and not some non-Hindu nationalists, but it seems like it's mostly Hindu nationalists, believe that the Indo-European languages came from India, and that the mm. Aryans actually were always in India. They were always in the northwest part of India, and that they're indigenous. And the Indus Valley civilization was an Aryan civilization. And so, um, you know that. That refutes the invasion. That means that the upper castes are not disproportionately descended from migrants, from invaders from the steppe, that they, in fact, are authentic indigenous people, just as the people of South India are. Um, and so, I mean, that's. I mean, they must, they must yeah. be descended from migrants if you go back. I mean, even if you believe if you go that back theory, far if enough. you go back yeah. far enough. Yes. If you go back far enough, because... they come, everyone comes from Africa. Right. Yeah, but that doesn't, that's not the key. I think the key, I mean, like putting my, like, Taking my geneticist hat off, okay, culturally the issue is the Aryan invasion, and I actually know this partly because people who they respond to me on Twitter when I post these results respond in a very ideological way. So there are Hindu nationalists who are really angry because the out-of-India theory is probably wrong, but then there are secular people, and I use secular in the Indian context because I know that means something different, secular left-wing people that are like crowing about, oh, the, these migrations from the steppes and Hinduism comes from Central Asia and Indians, you know, Indian civilization comes from Central Asia. Th that actually doesn't follow from the genetics at all. Like both groups are really, really using the genetics in a selective way. Um, it's more of a synthesis. I would say that Hinduism, as we understand it, you can't understand it without its non-Aryan components, which means that it is constitutive to India. It didn't the Vedic gods might have existed outside of India, but even Vedic culture as a whole is pretty clear from what I have been told and just like my cursory examination of the Vedas, the translations, is 
they were created in the in Indian context, probably in Northwest South Asia. So Vedic culture itself, though it was Aryan, and though its recent antecedents were from the Central Asia, it is Indian. It's a new thing within India, right? Um, so mm, mm. I think like that's a subtle aspect that I do want to emphasize to people. And sometimes people want to have these ideological arguments. And it's, you know, the genetics is not an easy mapping onto whatever hobby horse you have, right? So the out of India, right. the problem with the out of India theory is um, Indians are very genetically distinct from other groups in the world because of the particular mixes that South Asians have, right? And you don't see much of that outside of South Asia. You see a little bit in Afghanistan, parts of Iran like Khorasan, like the Mashhad area, really close areas, okay? But the genetic ancestry that you see in, say, among Lithuanians, uh, you see a component of that in India, among the upper castes, and especially in the Northwest. Like, So, I mean, what do you conclude from that? I mean, I think the natural conclusion is that, I mean, they're not necessarily from Lithuania, but that um, India was not the source. It was it was a target of some sort of migration. So because if you look at people who speak Indo-European languages, you can look at their genetics and see what they share in common. Even if they don't share much in common, what they share in common is probably from the Indo-Europeans, correct? Well, they, mm. do, they don't, the, peop, the Indo-Europeans, like the Basques, in Spain are somewhat different than the non-Basques in Spain. And that's almost certainly because of Indo-Europeans. Well, I mean, the, the, non, the non-Basques in, in Spain are not, it's not like they have Indian distinctive ancestry. They have something that looks like the Volga steppe ancestry. We have a lot of ancient DNA and also a lot of contemporary DNA. And that's just, that's just the, the, the most plausible conclusion and now we're getting ancient DNA from the Indus River uh, Valley civilization. And, you know, there have been re- leaks into the press. But, I mean, they're not finding this steppe ancestry from Central Asia before, you know, 1800 BC. Before, to, you know, basically it looks like the idea that the Vedas were composed between 1500 BCE and 1000 BCE is correct because it looks like that's when the Central Asians arrived. So, I mean, that's the natural conclusion right. from the Vedas. I mean, Vedas. there's... there's- Yes, there's no reason to think, even if that's when they arrived, that they brought the text with them. No, I mean, there's exactly. no reason why they shouldn't have arrived, settled in, and then written the text. Yes, yes. I'm a geneticist, so like, I can't like speak to a lot of these linguistic and cultural issues, but I do believe that it's wrong to assert that Vedic culture is somehow distinctly intrusive and alien because... I think you can't understand a lot of Indian culture even 3,500 years ago without Vedic culture because it was all a mishmash and a mix. And, and like the cultural context is part of it is, is the Muslims because the Hindu nationalists hate the Muslim invasions as an alien, alien intrusion. And so the secular – this is what I've seen on Twitter. Okay, This is what I've seen on Twitter. Mm, secular mm. leftists say, well, look at these Aryans. They were total aliens. Mm, and honestly, mm. I just think that's wrong. Um, it was the, the, the Muslims, I mean, okay, like they converted a lot of people like some, like my ancestors, right? But, you know, they had a very self-conscious, strong idea of how they were different from Hindustan. Persian was still the right, court right. culture. Persian was still the court language of the Mughal, of the Mughals, right? They looked, they, they were part of the Darul Islam. They were part of a greater, 
you know, Hanafi Sunni civilization that went back to Fergana and Central Asia. We know this because we have histories. Muslims, thank God, wrote a lot of histories, but we don't have this for the Aryans. But I do think in that period, there's not an ideological sense that's as strong as later. And I think you can't imagine that by the time that the Aryans were in India by, say, 1000 BC, they have no idea who the Mycenaean Greeks are. They have no idea who, um, you know, the Nordic, the Nordic uh, Badlax culture is. Even though those people are related to them in some way, they've diverged so far. They've mixed with the local people of India. You can't really say that they kept themselves apart um, as non-India. They kept themselves apart, but not as non-Indians, and that's, that's right. You know, that's right. a, that, that's a, it's a, it's an important clarification for me. Yes, I think that's um, yes. I I see exactly what you mean. They they weren't referring to some other culture, saying our culture came from here. Yes, exactly. You no, know, that's exactly what Hindu nationalists point out. Right. So I um I'm just. Um, I think this feeds nicely into another question that somebody gave me on Twitter, which I, um, I'm also interested to hear your answer to, which is whether you think the Ramayana and the Mahabharat are based on historical events. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the person to ask this because, like, I you know I haven't read those. I mean, they're they're huge, right? Especially the Mahabharata. Um, I haven't read those in totality, yes, I, you know. So. I haven't read them. I've just watched the TV series. Okay, well, I haven't even um, see, I haven't even watched that, you know. So I mean, like, cause, I watched them growing up. Um. <laughs> like, I've watched like two two Bollywood movies in my whole life. I I don't really have exposure to that. I mean, I kind of want to go to Diwali sometime just to check it out. Um, you know, growing up in the United States is well. You just missed this. I year. know, I know, I know. I need. I'm like, I've been to No Ruse, you know, because I had a, I have a an Iranian friend when I was uh, younger. Anyway. It's just there's a lot of things I, I I don't know like viscerally like personally. But, you went to the you went to the Persian one. Yes, the Persian I have gone to in, I, in March. Um, yeah, yeah, not this year, but I mean I've gone to No Ruse before. You know, when I lived in California, mm. I went to No Ruse with a, a Persian friend of mine, and so um, I've been to that, but I've never been to Diwali. So you know, it, it's just weird that um, way. Well, someday I'll uh, someday we can do Navros, the Zoroastrian New Year together. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Although, like, I got which I, you've also I, you've also missed this year because it's it, it's usually well at the moment it's in mid August. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, that's a hot. I mean, I'm just gonna I gotta avoid the the sweets, man. Like the the sweetest food I ever had was probably at that festival. I don't know, like, what you guys or what not you guys, but like you know, like Iranians, what they put in their like food to make it s- seem so sweet. But um, in any case, like you were talking about, like a like a, like another question. Uh, so I'll, I'll let you go. Oh yes. So um, oh, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. Think, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. So that was historical events. Um, I think that there's history in them, and I think we need to figure out how to mine that history. Um, I did not believe. Uh, the, I guess what I would say is, like ten years ago, I looked at folk tales as mostly inventions of like a common human psychology. I think in uh, evolutionary psychology, you would call it evoked culture. So people have ideas of like little people and trolls and monsters. It's not because those really existed, but it's because our psychology is very similar throughout a lot of cultures, and we create these motifs. The motifs emerge naturally from the human cognitive superstructure. That was what I would say ten years ago. Today, I think we have um, we have like evidence of such recent contact between very different people. And I'll, I'll tell you something. I was telling a scientist friend of mine who didn't know. He's a neuroscientist, so he shouldn't know. They don't know very much. No, but uh, sorry, that's a geneticist joke. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, uh, when the um, when the first farmers arrived in Europe, 
Um, let's say they arrived in Northern Europe. I think like they arrived in Germany 6,000 years ago. 6,000? Maybe like 7,000. In any case, it was the LBK culture, linear be- uh, beaker. But um, not beaker. But anyways, LBK culture. They arrive. There's hunter-gatherers there, okay? Like the European Mesolithic hunter-gatherers who, you know, derived from a migration during the Pleistocene, during the Ice Age. First of all, we know that the hunter-gatherers probably looked really different than modern Europeans because um, they're – as you might have heard, um, their their genes for pigmentation are totally different, except for the fact that they seem to mostly have had blue eyes, a higher fraction than modern Europeans, in fact. But their genes for mm, skin color mm. suggest that they might have been darker. I don't think that they were. Right. I don't think they were black, as some people are saying, but I think they were definitely probably brownish, like say an Inuit person or an Eskimo person. You know, um, mm, mm. the early Europeans probably were not super white themselves. Um, but in any case, um, they look different. The genetic distance between these two groups is the same as the genetic distance between modern modern Northern Europeans and Chinese. Okay. Oh yes. So the, when the, yes, yeah, so when these two groups came into contact all these thousands of years ago, what do they think of the other group? Like that's what I wonder. You know, um, like what legends and stories did they make about? the forest people that were slowly retreating before them and whose daughters they were taking as wives. Cause again, I mean, unfortunately the way human society look, it seems like marginalized groups, um, they tend to give up their daughters in these, you know, bride exchanges. Right. Um, so, you know, as they're being assimilated, their culture is disappearing. Um, and then the farmers themselves in their turn, you know, they disappear very quickly. Again, they give their daughters, um, you know, there's some admixture with the local population of these people from the steppe, um, you know, in corded ware or bell beaker, and they probably look different too. And so we have these like different looking people creating these legends. So in Norse mythology, you have legends of the fertility gods, the Vanir, um, the primary ones that we know of are Frey and Freya. And then you have the Asir, who are the primary pantheon with Thor um, and Odin. And there was a theory that, oh, these like gods that fused into one are actually a reflection of two people that fused into one because the Vanir are fertility gods, where the Asir are sky gods, steppe people. Well, we know today Mm -hmm. that Scandinavia was subject to exactly this dynamic about 4,000 years ago when people whose origins are in the steppe as agro-pastoralists contacted and assimilated and overwhelmed a farming population whose origins were in the south. So I'm not saying that this is where the Vanir and the Asir come from, but it actually fits in line with this older model. So going to India, well, you know, I have read in the past that the fact that, you know, in the in the Vedas, sometimes um, people are described as maybe light-skinned and other people are described as dark, you know. Oh, well, that's a metaphor. You know, that's what I was told. I don't think it was a metaphor now. I think, you know, we know enough about the genetics that it looks like a relatively light-skinned population. Um, not European. They were probably not blonde or blue-eyed. But light-skinned came into the subcontinent, and there was a browner-skinned population there. And they eventually mixed mm. into that browner-skinned population. But, I mean, if you look at the um, the people of Nuristan, um, the, the Kafir Kalash, they are probably the closest to i mean genetically what, what there's been new dna in the last 10 years and it looks like um, the ancestral north indians are, are a fusion between several different peoples 
Um, there's that steppe component that I'm talking about, the Indo-Aryans, but there's also these Iranian farmers um, who are somewhat different than modern Iranians who have admixture from West Asia further west, like the Levant. And then there's also um, a little bit of admixture, even into the Kalash, from indigenous South Asians, um, hunter-gatherer types that are not related to West Eurasians at all. And those people are probably the closest to, um, you know, what the original Indo-Aryans look like. So a, a brunette white people is how you might describe them. You know, there's some of them have blue eyes and are blonde hair, but the very few. Mostly they look Iranian to me or Middle Eastern, you know. Mm, and, mm. and so, um, you know, you have this situation and then you have the natives who are at that point, the Indus River Valley, a mix between these Iranian farmers and indigenous people. And if you look at some of these, um, you know, carvings, I mean, it's kind of hard because it's not like it's Greek in its representation of reality of the verisimilitude, right? But I mean, they definitely look different in some ways, um, just in terms of their features. I'm thinking in particular of the dancing girl. Uh, the, I think the Harappa dance. I don't know if she's from Mahanjadara or Harappa, but the dancing girl looks does not look West Eurasian to me. So I think right. I will I will put an image in the show notes. Okay, just um, so people know. Yeah. So um, yes. So basically, uh, yeah, I do think that the Ramayana and the Mahabharata preserve oral history of real historical events. Now, unfortunately, we don't have writing that we can translate, you know? So it's going to have to be kind of inform us in our general background and not give us specific details of what happened. But the genetics is really useful because it can show us the dynamics of when and how some of these admixtures occurred between very different lineages. So did I understand you right? Do you think that some of these conflicts between um, newcomers and residents, I guess we could we could put it that way, um, might have given rise to some of the kind of martial and battle imagery and the, um, myths of, myths to do with conflict? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, so, uh, you know, as some of your listeners probably know, um, in northern Syria, actually, um, where the Islamic State was ascendant, um, you know, between the Tigris and the Euphrates in northern Syria, um, there was a state, um, sometimes it's called the Matani state. Um, I think it's indigenously called the Hanbalat or something. Anyways, this was like flourished in the middle, around like 1500 BCE, plus or minus 200 years, okay? They were allied with the Hittites and Egyptians at various times. So this state spoke a non-Indo-European, non-Semitic language, Hurrian, but um, a subset of the linguistic terminology having to deal with charioteering are Indo-Aryan, right? So um, they probably the, the the most plausible hypothesis is that Santashta um, charioteers from you know somewhere in like you know modern Turkmenistan filtered through West Asia and probably installed themselves as military ruling class in this area of Syria got culturally assimilated, but they were the ones who brought the chariot. They were the ones who you know their 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 function in society was war, and so the languages. War, or the, the linguistic terminology for war still remained Indo-Aryan. This is not like historically without precedent. Um, in the Byzantine Empire in Constantinople, uh, Latin remained used even in military commands hundreds of years after mm. the West Roman Empire had collapsed because mm. that was Latin was used in legal contexts 
and in military contexts, and Greek was used in everything else. And so um, I think the cultural context of Vedic India was that these people arrived, um, they were disproportionately male, which means that they needed they needed wives. And so they had to get them. And traditionally, people don't want you to take their daughters or the wives that they already have. And so I think that there was conflict. And I think the conflict is what is remembered in some of these stories. Um, some people say that there are actually conflicts between different Indo-Aryan groups or between Iranians and Aryans. And that could be there too. I, I don't think any of these are mutually exclusive. I do think um, the description of cities in some of the older works, um, it could be back to Margiana in modern-day Tajikistan, uh, Fargahana area. But um, I think it's probably the Indus River Civiliz- Valley River Civilization, which did undergo a massive um, unwinding and cultural uh, regression about the time the Indo-Aryans show up, which, you know, today um, we view history in a Whiggish way where complexity is increasing and, you know, everything becomes richer and wealthier and more densely populated. But in that period, there were multiple instances of a total regression to a simpler state society. And that might have been right. what happened. Well, in the, the Romans. Yeah, yeah. The Romans are definitely a classical case, um, you know, but I mean, in the, in the Bronze Age, it was even more extreme. The Greeks forgot that their ancestors spoke Greek. The classical Greeks did not know who the Mycenaeans were. They had some legends which, which preserved some elements of ancient Mycenaean Bronze Age culture, but they didn't know that those people were actually Greek, and they thought that the citadels built, like places like Mycenae and Terrans, were built by Cyclops. They didn't realize that they were built 400 years ago or 500 years ago by their ancestors. They had forgotten their, mm. their past so mm. totally. Um, in Sumeria, in Mesopotamia, it looks like there's a massive collapse around 3000 BC, um, and there was a massive regression, uh, political, social political collapse. We don't have records, so we don't know what happened, you know? But um, so the Indus River Valley civilization was like a big urban conglomeration. And, you know, one thing we know about these sorts of societies is they can be a little frail because they rely on interdependent relationships. Like they're not, they're, they're kind of fragile, right? They're not robust, especially these pre-modern ones, um, these really, really early Bronze Age ones that might not have an ideological glue to them. Um, they might unwind really, really quickly. So I think what you're seeing with the Vedic civilization, which frankly is totally barbaric, um, not civilized in any way um, that we could understand, is, I mean, it's like the arrival of the Franks into France uh, in the 4th or 5th century, or um, perhaps more appropriately, the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons into Britain. So genetically, most English people probably have, like, within English, England itself, England proper, not, not local areas like the east of England, have more ancestry from British Celtic people that lived during the Roman and sub-Roman times than they do Germans that arrived in the 4th to 6th centuries. But culturally, the Anglo-Saxons were so dominant that Christianity disappeared. There's very few loanwords from Celtic into the Anglo-Saxon language. Um, Basically, when the Roman legions disappeared and Roman civilization collapsed, the local village society was totally assimilated by this more vigorous, like, incoming Germans who were total pagan barbarians, right? I think this is a very similar situation of what might have happened in Northwest India 4,000 years ago or like 3,500 years ago where, yes, the local people are very dense on the ground and there's more of them, but they were relying on this, you know, social political structure to scaffold their understanding of the world. 
And then once they collapsed, it's like total anomie and regression. Same thing happened in the interior Balkan region where the Slavic um, migration was partly genetic, but it was also part, partly cultural assimilation of Latin peasants because Slavic society was small-scale society that could actually ideologically assimilate them, whereas the old Roman system was gone and there was nothing to replace it, right? And so, I, I mean, I'm speculating mm. here, but these are the analogies that I generally draw to understand what happened and how it, how it came to be that the Aryans were so dominant in the northern two-thirds of, of India, even though they were probably numerically um, not the majority. Right, so they had a culture, basically, which was lacking by the Vedic period. Am I understanding that correctly? Um, what do you mean a culture that was lacking? They had a more, sof- a more, yeah, yeah, a more yeah, sophisticated yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, culture. Yeah, yeah. The Indus Valley culture was, it was a city-based culture, right? It was huge. Mm-hmm. It expanded from like the edges of Gujarat, and it started pushing into the upper Gangetic Plain um, near the end. Uh, you know, you know the, the merchants from uh, Malua, um, were almost certainly from Indus Valley civilization. There were trading colonies in Sumeria, one in Dilmun. So um, there was a lot of contact, actually, commercial contact between, you know, Indus Valley civilization and Mesopotamia during that period. Um, but the Mesopotamians, um, they got invaded around 2000 by barbarians from Zagros, but they survived uh, culturally. Although Sumerians disappeared, replaced by Babylonians. Um, in the Indus Valley civilization, um, it looked, I'm a little con- I'm I'm a little confused, Razi, between Aryans, Vedic, the Vedas, mm-hmm. the Vedic civilization, and the Indus Valley. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure which, which is which. Uh, which is which is which now? So wait. So um, what you're saying is, in Vedic times, what we have is a um, a society which had regressed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like the Romans at the end of the collapse of the empire. Yes, more extreme, way more extreme. And but yes. And then the Indo-Aryans arrived and they developed, they were, um, they were a numeric minority, but they were culturally dominant because they had a, a clearer ideology, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mythology. Yeah, yeah, well. Um, a more sophisticated okay. um, intellectual contribution, is that? Uh, Not not um, exactly. I've obviously garbled it. You know, I mean, like I'm I'm going very class. I'm switching. I'm switching terminology a lot, partly because we have to make up the terminology in some cases. We don't have access to what the Indus Valley people call themselves. Right. Um, As far as Indo-Aryan, that's actually just a linguistic or philological terminology. Right. I mean, there's Indo-Aryan languages, but no one calls themselves Indo-Aryans. But the reason the Indo-Aryan, you know, it's obviously a branch of Indo-Iranian people, of Indo-European people that expanded south and east from probably the Volga area. I know I'm like, out of India, people are going to be super angry that I say that, but that's probably what it, what it likely is. So um, when I say they ideologically assimilated the local people, it's almost like their barbaric culture, which was not even an ideology, was much more appropriate to a... Um, to a uh, disordered social state of small villages than probably what was present during the um, Indus Valley civilization. So, for example, like I'll give you the concrete example of the Slavs in the Balkans. Um, after like about like 580 AD, uh, the Byzantine Empire, what became the Byzantine Empire, kind of gave up on the Balkans and focused on Anatolia and the Near East because they weren't getting any taxes in the Balkans. They left the peasants to do what they want. Um, they didn't care. They just like fortified the coastal cities. And so the interior was invaded by Avars, who are a steppe people. But 
along with them came these Slavic Slavic farmers from, say, Poland and Belarusia. And what happened is the Slavs brought a particular village-based barbaric society. We call it barbaric. Like, they don't have writing. Uh, they're not Christian. But they brought a kind of outlook in the world which made sense when you don't have a state. So if you're a Roman peasant and you consider yourself a Roman, like, that's what you consider yourself. That's why, that's why the Romanians don't call themselves Romanians. You're a Roman peasant. You're a citizen. You pay taxes in specie um, to the state. All of a sudden, all of that is gone. Uh, you have a bishop or a priest in the local area that tenders you know, nominally to your spiritual needs. Um, all of that is gone. What do you do? You know, I mean, you can, you, you can live as an isolated family, but that's atomizing. But then you have this tribe that comes. And yeah, they're, they're a little rough around the edges. But they might take you in as, um, as like a secondary group or perhaps as a vassal. Well, eventually what ends up happening is you assimilate to the tribal identity because at least that's an identity, right? You are of, mm-hmm. you are of like the Serbian tribe or the Croatian tribe because like how can you say you're a Roman? The Romans are not there. The, the Romans is conditional upon having a state. Once you no longer have a state, you need something. And your previous um, local identity was integrated into the Roman identity. Like you can't separate it. And so you become this new thing. So, you know, like just a random fact, um, King Alfred and his lineage in, in Anglo-Saxon um, England, uh, the kings of Wessex, they were almost certainly originally British warlords and not Anglo-Saxons. Their names in his genealogy, the early names, are much more Welsh sounding than they are German. But, I mean... The only game in town was to become an Anglo-Saxon warlord, so that's what they became. You know, the per- the Persian the Persian nobles who were conquered by the Arabs um, after Cadicia, um, you know, some of them retreated into northern Iran and remained Zoroastrian, but a lot of them converted and became, you know, became Muslim nobles. Like your material interests can determine a lot of these things. So what I'm trying to say in northern Northwest India is like. I mean, I, obviously, it's probably not like it was not an invasion between two states because I don't think the Indo-Aryans had a state. I think they were like the Golden Horde or something. And the Indus Valley civilization in its more robust period would probably not have to worry about them because robust states can usually hold off or bribe barbarian pastoralists. But when the state is not around to collect the taxes and have the wealth, you can't bribe them. So they come in and they take what they want. Right. And and once they start doing that, all of the ideological um, ties that are binding people from, say, northern Pakistan to southern Pakistan. And this is all speculation. We don't know if it one state, but it was definitely one culture. All the ideological ties that are binding this culture together are gone because, you know, the rulers are gone. So all of a sudden you have to create a new identity. So in Roman Gaul, the Romans eventually took the name of the illiterate pagan barbarians that conquered them, the Franks, because those were their rulers now, you know, like it was an, it was an extreme shock initially for the Romans to actually have rulers who were unlettered barbarians. And some of them were not even Christian, but ultimately at the point of the sword, you have to take these rulers. And so you can imagine a situation where um, local elites decided to, go to the Aryan side because that was the only way they could preserve their position, right? So the Aryans are these tribes that arrive and they have a culture, the Vedic culture. Now, perhaps it wasn't one singular culture. 
that's I mean, like you know, when when the barbarians came to um, the Roman Empire, they came as separate tribes. There were you know the Vandals, there were the Goths. Um, there were also like groups like the Sarmatians um, who were Iranian, and the Sarmatians were very active in Spain, and they eventually were integrated into the Vandal Kingdom in North Africa. The Vandals are German. So the Vandal Kingdom was the kingdom of the Vandals and the Sarmatians, right? So you have these like weird compounds. Um, if we're going to make that analogy, I think like you probably have a very diverse situation um, in northern India during that period. And you know, I can speak to the generalities. I can't speak to the specifics because we don't unfortunately have writing, right? But I can tell you the genetics is showing a lot of mixture, new people. These new people are related to people that live on the steppe, you know, and you know, you see this massive collapse in complex integrative society in Northwest India around this period, you know, like it could have been triggered initially by climate, but basically once soldiers cannot protect, once you cannot protect the people you rule, they are sheep for pastoralists. This is what we've seen up until the gunpowder empires arose and managed to defeat the step pastoralists. The step pastoralists, you have to bribe them or you have to bleed yourself dry to fight them. And so if, if, if that's mm. a model, if you don't, can't bribe them and you can't fight them because you don't have much of a government because it's too weak, then um, they're going to come in and they're going to do what they do best. So, Rasib, I'd like to just fast forward uh, maybe a thousand or a few thousand years. <laughs> um, we can do that on a podcast, right? <laughs> yes, I think so. Um, you can make little little kind of high-pitched noise of um, so I wanted to ask you about the caste mm -hmm. system and my starting point for this I don't know too much about this my starting point is um, I had heard a lot of people um, suggesting that the caste system was actually in imposition of the British that the Indians hadn't really had strict castes that it was just a question mm -hmm. of occupational designations and it was a very loose thing and uh, it was during the Raj that, that the caste system became solidified. However, um, the genetic evidence that I read, which I think you sent me the link uh, for, mm -hmm. suggests that uh, the Indian caste system began around 2,000 years ago so that before 2,000, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong in this summary, but before Previous to 2,000 years ago, um, when we look genetically at Indians, we see that um, people's genetics varies vary by region. Mm -hmm. So people who live close to each other are more similar genetically than people who live further away mm -hmm. from each other, which is what you would expect in, a, on, in the normal situation. Yes. You're more likely to have sex with people who are mm -hmm. nearby. Um, and at, from around 2,000 years ago, what we see is uh, distinct genetic differences that are not based on region, but that are based on caste. Um, mm -hmm. And so what we see is that for the last around 2,000 years ago, caste became mm -hmm. a thing. And for the past 2,000 years, caste groups in India have interbred uh, rather mm -hmm. little or very mm -hmm. little. Mm -hmm. um, so, would you like to talk about that a little bit? Have I have I understood that? I mean, correctly? yeah. I mean, you have like the general outline, and it's the issue here is like you know, obviously, like if you want to like give a couple of sentences, you're you're um, you know, I'm actually like shaving down a lot of 
a lot of the uh, details. So, you know, in general, if you look at China or if you look at Europe, um, population geneticists would say that everything is that in those landscapes, everything is defined by what you would call isolation by distance, where just as you said, you have your you get your mates from people near you. Right. And so you're 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 putting yourself on a geographic map when you do a um, genetic analysis of any population. Right? It's really straightforward there. Um, there are no minority populations of, say, the Han that are are except for the Hakka, uh, maybe who came from northern China in the last thousand years that are genetically very distinct. That can't be explained by geography. And this same is, is relatively true in much of Europe. These are what are called panmictic populations, random mating populations. Right. Like it's not like. You know, someone in a village in England was like, well, you can't marry them because they're um, an untouchable. Okay. You can't marry them because they're, they're poor or something. And that stuff moves and changes generation by generation, right? Um, the only exception that I can think of is um, in Europe would be Ashkenazi Jews, to some extent gypsies. And also there's a group in France called Kagats who might have been descendants of converted Muslims. Um, in the south of France that came from Spain. Anyways, those are the only ones that I can think of off the top of my head, probably others. But um, in Europe, you don't find these situations. So when you first, when people first looked at India, um, it was a little shocking because there's so much structure. And by this, I mean that, um, you know, there are people in the south of India who are genetically on a PCA plot, principal component analysis, which is visualizing relatedness, basically, that are closer to people in Cambodia than they are to people in Iran, and then people in the north in the north India, say like in Uttar Pradesh, that are far closer to people in Iran. So within India, you have you have all you have like much of Eurasia within India. That's one thing, and I think people can tell that visually. If you look at a Kashmiri Pandit, or if you look at an average Tamil, they look very different, even though there are some similarities. Mm-hmm. There's also stuff that binds them together. Okay, so we know this visually, but there's other things that are very strange because if you take um, if you take a bunch of Gujaratis, if you take a bunch of Gujus, and I'm talking about like a sample from Houston that was collected, you know, 15 years ago, this is a, a common genetic sample. Um, they're very genetically diverse, and some of these Gujus um, they cluster with people from Pakistan. Some of them cluster with people from southern India. They're all over the place. Um, and actually, if you take people from Lahore, Muslims from Lahore, you see the same thing too, which I don't understand. Um, it's not the same in Bangladesh, and I can get to that, but. Um, in Bangladesh, people are way more homogenous, like a European country. I don't know why. Um, but anyways, in, in, in South Asia, in a given region, it's really obvious that there's continental scale structure, okay? Which means that like, mm. which doesn't make sense. That means, means Dalits are more genetically similar to other Dalits or Brahmins. Oh, yeah, yeah. Brahmins. So, I mean, I, I can tell you this like concretely because like I analyze this data. Um, when I look at uh, like, is it like Mahar? I think they're a group in the northern India. Not, no, they're in Maharashtra. There's another group in. There's a Dalit group in Uttar Pradesh. Um, do you know anything like that? I, there, I mean, there's a Dalit group in Uttar Pradesh. I look at their samples. They look more like Dalits in South India than they look like other people in Uttar Pradesh. That doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense if you're coming from a European perspective. Okay, that makes no sense. If you look at um, a Tamil Brahmin, first of all, if you look at a Tamil Brahmin. A Telugu Brahmin, an Andhra Brahmin, and uh, Kerala Brahmin, and I know this because I've looked at all their genotypes, 
they all look exactly the same. They're, I mean, they're, they're somewhat different, but they're very, very similar. Like they came from the same population. Also, they're very, very well modeled as being a 75% North Indian Brahmin and 25% generic Tamil. Not Dalit, but just generic Tamil. Okay? All of them. Um, if you look at a Bengali Brahmin, they're very, very well modeled as 75% UP Brahmin, 25% generic Bengali. So there has been some mixture, but what it looks like is uh, to make to make a short of it is like within the last two thousand years, Brahmins have mixed, but it's been like migrations of men that have married some local women, and then once they had their own communities that they could marry from, they stopped intermarrying. Okay, and so the two thousand mm, year mm. Um, uh, example you're quoting from is like some samples from Andhra Pradesh, and they were looking at communities like the same village, and it looked like the intermarriage rate was just like point one point two percent per generation. Um, I mean, just inferring from the genetic difference, like the genetic difference within this, within this village um, was like the genetic difference. I mean, this is actually a real example. I'm thinking like, I'm thinking in terms of the, 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 the values, like the difference between Finns and Sicilians within this village. Mm, okay. Mm. So it's like within like continental Europe, like having Northern Europeans and people from Sicily living together in the village for hundreds and hundreds of years at least 2000 years and they just barely intermarry. Right. So the idea that the British invented it, obviously stupid. The idea that the British, um, you know, somehow made it much stricter. I don't know. I'm kind of skeptical from the data I've looked at, but we need to look at more data. They might have in some cases. Um, the idea that the British arranged things in a certain way and crystallized some, I mean, I think that, that there's probably something to that. Probably the Muslims are the same. Now, one thing that I will say I was surprised when I looked at Pakistan samples, they're structured just like ones from India. So I, I know there's, they're, mm, they're exactly mm. the same. Like there are Punjabis that look way more like Guju Brahmins, like from Lahore that are Muslim. And then other Punjabis that look like they could be from Andhra Pradesh. Okay. I, I don't know why that is because I don't know enough about Pakistan, but I see it. So do you, do you think those people were, had Hindu ancestry and converted? Well, I mean, almost all, all South Asians, all South Asian Muslims did, right? Right. So Yes. But sometimes, um, the, sometimes, sometimes the castes that, are preserved in totality, and sometimes they're not. I know that people talk a lot in India about um, a, a, a sort of um, residual preservation of the caste system among Christ, Indian mm -hmm. Christians and uh, Sikhs. Uh, and you know, Sikhism. One of the one of the founding principles of Sikhism was that there was to be no caste, which is why all the men took the surname Singh and the women the surname Kaur, and why everybody eats together um, after the after the service yeah. to prevent you know Brahmins from not being able to eat with non Brahmins, etc. Yeah. yeah. Um, but nevertheless, I know that. Um, uh, some people still consider there to be castes within Sikhism, and when they are looking for um, other Sikhs to marry, they want to marry Sikhs who are of the right caste, which doesn't even make logical sense within mm -hmm. Sikhism. And the same with uh, Christians. Um, and and that a lot of since a lot of Christians were were Dalit converts, for obvious reasons, this was these were the people to whom uh, conversion was particularly attractive. Um, I mean, you would want to convert if you were treated like shit by your native religion, yeah. right? Um, but and many of those pe those 
Christians um, are now as a kind of um, identity thing, as a political statement, um, are calling themselves Dalit Christians and are identifying as Dalits. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I get – so I, I run a project where I, like, analyze people's data, like Indian people. It's called the South Asian Genotype Project. People just email me. I've gotten several emails from people who say they are Christian Brahmin, um, and mm. they look like South Indian Brahmins. I mean, they're usually from, the, you know, Konkan Coast to that area. They, they look genetically just like South Indian Brahmins, okay? So um, they have been – they, it sounds like they were Christian for a while, but they just kept marrying other Christian Brahmins, so – um, I'm assuming that that, that 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 is true. I mean, I, I think it's more than residual. I've heard, I've had Sikh friends, like Sikh American friends, who've been very offended by caste and stuff, and who've com- who've told me that, yeah, like they're total hypocrites, and you know, um, it's shocking because you know, in the American context, um, I don't. I mean, caste is not. You're just you're you're brown, okay? Like you're not. No one cares, and so. Um, <laughs> you know, even I mean, even among Hindus, I don't think anyone cares. But among Sikhs, for sure, they don't care. And um, so they get a rude awakening when they go back to India, apparently. Um, among Muslims, yeah, there's, I've heard there's things like that. I don't know in detail. Like my family background is actually – I know a little bit more about it because um, – well, I mean I asked around and uh, my parents don't talk about it too much because like who cares? We live in America. We're brown, right? And like they're more into being Muslim anyways. Mm-hmm. But I mean my family background is like I know that um, – I know the Hindu backgrounds of some of my, some of my ancestors, right? So my, uh, my dad's – my dad's mother's father was a Bengali Brahmin. Okay, I know that. And then um, she still does weird things. Like, she, well, she's she's dead now, but um, she was weird because she would never eat off other people's dishes. And, and she was very, she was she was she was raised as a Muslim. She was born Muslim, raised as a Muslim. But she got that from her father. Obviously, that's what my mom told told me. I, the only reason I know about that background is she told me like, well, your grandmother's really a Hindu. I mean, she just told me that, and I was like, what does that mean? And then. You know, my dad explained, but um, then like on my mom's side, you know, they're I think they're Kayasta, you know, like um, their last name is Sarkar, and so um, you know, that's just like generic Bengali. I think I think the Sarkar like caste in West Bengal is similar to what like most East Bengalis are, and so one thing is like when I look at the samples from Dhaka, because um, there's there's a, a project that I'm alluding to where I see samples from Lahore and there's samples of Tamils and they're you know etc. Um, the samples from Dhaka they look um, the topology, the distribution looks like a European population. It looks random mating, except for a very mm, small minority mm. that looks South Indian. I don't know who those people are, but I can look at the codes and I can see that they were collected simultaneously from each other. So they came as a unit to the to the hospital. Okay. I don't mm, know who those people mm, I don't, I don't know oh, who those people are. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, interesting. But they're they're genetically very different. They look like Tamils. They look like Tamil Dalits. Okay. And like, they're also, they're Mm, also very different mm. because they have no East Asian ancestry. Like all of the Bengalis, all of the Bengalis um, are five to like 15% East Asian. Um, It's probably due to geography. My family's from the far, far East and we're all 15%, you know, Um, West Bengalis are less Bengali Brahmins. They're like two or 3%, which is exactly what you would estimate based on them being only 25% generic Bengali. These, these individuals from the Bangladesh sample, the small minority, they have zero East Asian ancestry. I don't know why. They could be the descendants of migrants. They could be some isolated caste. I do not know. But anyway, those are the things that I've been finding out. Um, none of this makes any sense from a European, European like cultural context. It doesn't make any sense from a Chinese cultural context. It does kind of make sense from a Middle Eastern context. 
Because in the Middle East, you do have caste-like tendencies where groups like Assyrians um, will not intermarry with obviously Muslims and Jews will not intermarry. So if I look at genetic data from the Middle East and I see individuals that have no African ancestry, no East Asian ancestry from Turks, and that just look a little too homogenous, I can almost immediately tell that they're from ethno-religious minorities who don't intermarry. Because most of the Muslims are more cosmopolitan. Well, there are there are castes within Zoroastrianism also. Um, I mean, it's not a very um, extensive caste system, and I don't know where when the caste system dates to, i.e. whether the caste system predates arrival in India. Yeah. Um, that's the kind of thing you could probably find out by doing by looking at the genetics. Um, but traditionally, uh, Parsis have a priest caste, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, uh, about 10% of Parsis. And traditionally, a priest caste only married other priest caste. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which I'm I'm surprised that they don't have a lot of um, genetic abnormalities and heritable diseases within priest caste, because that's a tiny mm-hmm. group, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 10% of Parsis. That's a very small uh, group. Mm-hmm. And um, also the, um, the workers at the Tower of Silence, there are two different kinds of, they're not priests um, who are responsible for doing the funeral services, that is also a separate caste, um, traditionally. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, they lived in the Dungarwadi, in the Tower of Silence grounds, and only married other people from that caste. Okay. Um, so um, the rest of the Zoroastrians who are non-priests, um, non-Chadis who are not involved in, in funerary rites and who are not, also not priests, um, there's, as far as I know, no caste within that group mm-hmm. who are most most of the Parsis. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, my father was certainly not priest caste. Um, that I know. You also do lose your priest caste status if you go two generations without a priest in the family. Mm, okay. Okay. Uh, so, if, for example, you have two generations of daughters, then you're going to lose your status. Or if you have sons, but your sons don't actually become priests. So, in fact, my friend uh, Zubin Madden, who you may have come across, um, his uh, um, not, no one in his grandfather's or father's generation had been a priest. Mm-hmm. So, even though his father did not have very much interest in the in religion, he insisted that uh, Zubin became a priest. I see. So that they could keep their priest caste status. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, that's not. It sounds like it sounds complicated. Kind of Indian, like <laughs> I don't know. Just, yes. I mean, that's because so that's the issue with Parsis. Um, you know, what of their cultural tendencies are Indian and which are not? And so I guess you'd have to look at Iranis or the Zoroastrian communities in Yazd, those areas. Um, I do. I, I will say that. Uh, you know, um, early mythologists as far back as 1900 suggest that the Indo-Europeans, um, the steppe people, had three castes. Um, what, you know, would be Brahmins, uh, Kshatriyas, and, and the Vaishyas. And that, um, you know, this tripartite thing got elaborated in India is the argument. Um, there's still remnants of this um, in other Indo-European societies. Um, you know, Julius Caesar, um, he was a patrician, and he was, um, he was I think, like Thalamian Dialis. So he was, a, he was a priest. There were certain priesthoods that only patricians could join. And so, like, the Romans, even, like, mm. relatively late in the Republic, had a priest caste in a way. Although, like, you know, it's very nominal, obviously. It was, like, very, very um, decayed. But 
um, you know, German in German, like barbarians, like the Romans observed that they had a priest king and a military king, right? So the priest king was kind of like, you know, was the voice of God and for the gods and such. So I think like this might have some origins in Indo-Europeans, but definitely it changed a lot in India. So that I think of caste as like, okay, like that's Indian, you know, I mean, there's, there's caste like features in other societies, but what you see in India is very culturally unique. And the reality is the genetics are so weird. Um, and I say weird in terms of like, they're just not what you would expect. Like humans have sex right. with people near them. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just like, honestly, like when you look at it, it just, you think something is wrong. And I've talked to multiple geneticists the first time they saw it. They thought something was wrong in their code. They thought something wrong with sample data. Um, because it just, it doesn't match your intuitions from other places that you see. You know, a, a similar example would be um, <laughs> looking at um, evidence of inbreeding. Um, I have heard of a case where um, geneticists from Europe were, were, were consulting a hospital in, in the Gulf and they thought that their code was calibrated incorrectly and was multiplying the inbreeding by a factor of 10. But actually, these people had mm. just been marrying their cousins for a long time. Right, right. <laughs> and so... Um, I, yeah. Yes. I, I, wanted to, I, I want to kind of shift over onto a slightly related thing, which is skin color, um, which I'm personally quite fascinated by um, because uh, my father, despite being Parsi, was pretty Indian looking. He was, you know, a very kind of walnut brown colored man. Isn't the term isn't the term um, Wheatish? Wheatish. Um yes, I think that's a kind of snobbish term. <laughs> um yeah, that's a kind of fetishization of fairness sort of term. Yeah. Um yeah, yeah. Wheaton or whatever. Uh yeah, he looked like a little walnut. Um kind of walnut colored, I would say like a pale walnut or a kind of milky coffee. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, whereas I am very, I look white and not like Persian white, but warm undertones, white, you know, pinkish. Um, and um, I have also noticed this is, this is totally anecdotal um, and maybe quite unrepresentative and maybe also just the people who I am looking out for because I'm always delighted to find these people. Um, but I have noticed that a lot of people who are half Indian and not necessarily Indian Parsi, but not necessarily Indian Parsi, but Indian Indian, who are half Indian and half European, are very European looking mm-hmm. uh, in their coloring, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in their skin tone. And that includes when I was down in Oroville, um, I... Um, there are Oroville has a very large European population. Okay. It's about half Europeans and half Indians, and most of the Indians there are South Indians. Mm-hmm. Um I haven't surveyed actually, but I would say from the looks, most of the Indians there look like Tamils. Mm-hmm. And I encountered, you know, several kids who were born there of mixed uh, parentage, European and Tamil, and they also looked quite European, which I was not expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, even though their parents were not Wheatish, they were Tamils yeah. with a kind of deeper skin tone. And um, I'm very interested in, I'm sort of intrigued as to why this might be and how skin color inheritance works. Mm-hmm. And I just, um, since I've been uh, 
obsessing on the Bohemian Rhapsody film and Queen at the moment. Yeah, I like your review. I'm, I like your review. I might go. I might go you. watch it now because the review. <laughs> thank you. I, I, well, I've been commissioned to write a long form piece on Freddie Mercury, um, so my obsession is continuing at least until I finish that piece. And a number of people have commented or pointed out that uh, Freddie's parents um, look quite brown skinned and Indian. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two actors who play his parents in the film actually look very like his real life parents. Oh, okay. So he was the film. So he was the, he was the white one in the family. So he and he looks very he looks pale and white, yeah. and his sister even more so. Interesting. Um, so the two kids look very European, mm-hmm. um, and the parents look very Indian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're not dark, dark skinned, but they are recognizably brown. I would say, like a little browner than you. Mm, okay. Um, well, yeah. So I, I spend a, I, I spend a little too much time indoors working in an office is what my wife complains. Just so you know, I'm normally when I live in California, I was browner than this. So just, mm. just wanted to say. Well, I was so I was so happy when I came back from Sri Lanka mm-hmm. because suddenly I blended in in India. Mm, yeah, people didn't even do a double take because I looked. You know, people were surprised when I didn't speak to them in Marathi and things. I really looked. My skin turned a very Indian color, and I was so happy. And if there had been some button I could have pressed mm-hmm. to keep my skin color that way for life, I would have done so. But unfortunately, it has faded again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for a little while, I looked exactly like my dad. I mean, my skin looked like my dad's skin. Um, luckily, not the rest of me, but, you know, my skin tone looked like his. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So um, there are two things that are going on here, I think. Um, there's the genetics, which I know a fair amount about. Actually, I know a lot about, um, skin color pigmentation and we do as geneticists know a lot about it. Um, so I can explain, I I think I can like answer some of your questions pretty easily. Um, or at least like confidently. And then there's, then there's a psychology, which like, I will have to speculate a little more because I'm not a psychologist. I know a little bit about it, but you know, um, as you know, um, this has come up in my own life because I have, I have three mixed children and, um, you know, I mean, they look like me, but uh, let's just say that they are, you know, the term is white presenting, I think the term is, uh, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, I think I think the big thing is like, you know, um, my, my children don't have they look, they look, they look like honkies, isn't that? <laughs> I, you know what? You said it, I didn't say it. I don't know. I'm just trying to say that, you know, so I will tell you a real quick. Sorry, I, no, I'm just, I'm just trying not to be too politically correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, um, I have a, I don't want to get like, I don't want to get in Twitter jail or anything. They might like be listening on this. But um, so uh, when my son, my, my middle child, so my children all. I will, I will take responsibility for any politically incorrect statements okay. made on this podcast. Okay, well, I'm glad that you took upon that, the sins of Razib kind. Um, but uh, so, you know, my, when my son, um, when my son was, let's say six months, my middle son is like, he's, he is the swarthiest. Um, he has a nice tan, but um, his hair is, you know, I mean, at the time, frankly, it was blonde, um, but uh, it's medium brown now. And, um, you know, his hazel eyes, whatever. His features are not distinctively South. I don't know if I have distinctively South Asian features. I frankly think I'm a kind of a generic looking person feature wise, but in any case, um, so he goes into the pediatrician and, um, the pediatrician was like, are you tanning this child? <laughs> Cause I wasn't there. I wasn't there, <laughs> you know? And cause like the pediatrician sees a white child with a tan, 
and is worried, mm, you know? Mm, and mm. so, um, you know, there's just like funny things that I can tell you about my life or things like that I've heard and seen. So I have some insights from the psychology and the culture, but the genetics is really straightforward. Um, I should, I should actually, I just wanted to interject that I do also know a couple of people who are 100% Indian who are quite white presenting. Yes. Um, you know, who within a con the context, because you know they're Indian, you hear the name, you hear the accent, and they have dark mm -hmm. hair, dark eyes, yeah. and quite Indian looking features. Yes. Um, then in that sense, I think that meeting them, you immediately read them as Indian. But if I just took a picture of the arm, Yes. The skin of the arm or something. Yes. You would definitely say that was a white person. Yes. Um, it's a pale skin and it's not a cool toned, it's a warm toned, pinkish undertone, pale skin, like any, mm -hmm. like, you know, many European people would have. Not ultra pale, but it's rosy. There's a rosiness look, to it. It's not, it's not brown. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. It's, there's a rosiness to it. And actually, my, one of my friends who is Cindy. Mm hmm. Uh, in origin, um, my old dance partner who may be listening to this, he has a very brown Indian, kind of pale brown Indian looking skin on his body, but his face is rosy. I see. I see. Um, you know, his face actually looks quite, um, quite European, just the skin. Mm. Mm. Um, and again, I mean, if you saw him, heard his voice, etc., you would immediately feel he was... Indian or maybe Pakistani. He has a very Pakistani look, uh -huh. North Indian, yeah. Northwest Indian look. Um, but, uh, you know, the skin color is interesting. Anyway, sorry. Well, I mean, you're not, you're, not the, you're not the only one that's interested. Obviously, it's interesting for forensics. It's interesting for evolutionary biologists and physical anthropologists have been documenting this for, you know, a century now because the skin is our largest organ, right? It's how you identify mm, people. It's how mm. you code people really quickly. Um, you know, uh, I can tell you, like, I walk down the street, if I have a buzz cut, you know, I have had black males, like, nod at me and, like, start talking to me, and then they get close, and then they kind of turn away, because, you know, <laughs> they realize, you know, you know what I'm trying to say, though? Like, they, they felt a connection, and they thought <laughs> yeah. I was a brother, and, like, I'm just like, okay, like, I think I know what's going on, and I, they're going to realize it's a false positive soon, but whatever, I'll go with it, right? Because they see the skin. They see mm -hmm. a medium brown mm. guy. I could be African-American if my hair is short. You know, and you can't tell mm. very easily because um, I do a buzz cut a lot. So, well, I have a friend who's African who considers herself African American, and now that she's told me that, I can see it. Mm -hmm, but it's hard to see. Um, yeah. You know, I can see in the in the hair texture and kind of features a little bit. Yeah, yeah. mouth and nose features and things. But uh, um, until she told me, I had no idea mm. um, because I look at. I'm coding people again by skin color. So I look at her and I see a white European person. Mm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I know people like that and, uh, you know, in the American context, we have to be very careful. Be, uh, I don't want to get into it, but I mean like, you know, black Americans and the history and stuff, we would be very careful going up to be like, Oh, you're black. You, know, you, you don't, <laughs> you don't say that people are what they say they are just like leave it at that. Right. But uh, yeah, you know, I'm fine with that. You know, I'm fine with people identifying however they wish to and, you know, being part of whatever group they wish to be part of. Um, and I don't question people, I, but I am just, in, you know, curious and interested well, you know, as to I, I, how it works genetically. Well, I'll get to the junks. I do have to say, though, um, I'm going to be honest, like, and I, I told Victor Rivieri on, on the stream on this, uh, 
it, I get annoyed when white Latinos like do brown solidarity with me because like I'm an I'm in a brown skinned body, and you know mm-hmm. it's just like I'm brown, like I'm legit brown. Like if you did a statistic and my reflect, I'm brown, and like people with like you know they're obviously just white and they have a Latino you know Latin surname and they tell me that they're brown. I'm like. Don't tell me you're brown, okay? I'm just going to be honest, you know? Like, I understand what you're trying to say, that you identify as a minority, but if you're walking down the street, no one's going to, like, yell a racial slur at you because you're brown. They're going to think you're white, like Cameron Diaz, and then maybe if you have a Latino name, some really prejudiced people are going to be super weird and be like, well, now you're brown, you know? I'm just saying. So I I think there's there's limits to the identification thing, um, and, like, I personally feel, yeah. I agree, and also, you know, I look white. Yes. Or I present white or whatever. And and I have never, I think, outside of India, within India, I have had a few people who are kind of not fond of me because I'm not Indian mm. or Indian enough. Yeah. Um, but within a European or, and that's really rare instances, within a European or US context, I've never experienced racism. Uh, never. Yeah. Um, you know, because everybody reads me as a white person, even if I tell them that my father was that, you know, I had Pakistani citizenship at one time, that my father was Indian. Um, you know, even if even when I tell them that, it doesn't change their attitude, which is quite interesting. Uh, including the attitudes of people who are otherwise quite quite racist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. because it doesn't they still read me as the white European person. Yeah. My looks, my voice, education, everything else. They read me as a as a white European person um, and not as a, a South Asian person. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, as a result, I probably do underestimate how much racism there is, how much prejudice. And um, yes, I probably do underestimate that because I always just take people's word for mm-hmm. it. And I rarely witness it happening. Yeah, because it's not happening when to me or when I'm around. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, for I mean, um, for you, it's more about a theory, and for me, I have some experimental data. You know, right? Like right. I, I've, I've done. I'm not. You know. I'm not saying that I doubt people, yeah. but it's always it's more tricky because um, I I don't. You know, some people exaggerate it, other people kind of deny it, and I don't, you know, it's hard to know where the exact calibration is. It doesn't matter so much either. I'm just, I'm certain I probably underestimate it because of the way that I look and the experience that I have. Sure. Well, I mean, I'm a man. I know there's sexism. Mm -hmm. I've seen it. But I, I see way less of it because when I'm with a woman, men don't behave a certain way, right? It's the exact same, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, so to the genetics, though. So pigmentation is what we call a quantitative trait. Um, it's controlled by a lot of genes um, that combine to form the trait. So when you look at pigmentation in a lot of populations, so Indians are a classic case, but Brazilians are another. Um, it The trait comes out as a normal distribution, which means that most people are in the middle. Some people are lighter. Some people are darker. And the further and further you go from the middle value, the fewer and fewer people there are. It's just a bell curve, right? And so the bell curve is Mm -hmm. a natural outcome of what's called the central limit theorem, where you take a lot of individual individual ups or downs, individual values, and you merge them together into a sum totality. So Europeans um, and, say, people from the Sudan, they don't have that much variation in skin color, and that's partly because they're not that genetically diverse when it comes to pigmentation. 
They have all the same pigmentation genes, but if everyone has the exact same genes, it doesn't look like there's going to be any variation because it's mostly a genetic characteristic. Yes, you can get tanned and a few other things, but the way you measure pigmentation genetics is look at the underarm skin because that's usually you're not tanning in that area too much, right? So mm -hmm. the reason Indians and South Asians um, have so much variation is because we're genetically diverse from a lot of different sources. So the earlier stuff that I was talking about of these people from North Asia and West Asia and these native people that are related to the Andaman Islanders, you mix all these people together and they come out with this like wild range. So even within a family, you see a wide range. So, you know, I had, um, you know, I, like my, my mother had like, she had, you know, six brothers. She has five now. One of them is deceased. But anyway, but one of them was, they called him the black brother. And that was like, mm. it wasn't even a negative thing. It was just like, he was the black one, you know? Um, mm -hmm, and it's mm -hmm. because within the family, there's enough range that, um, people can observe this and see that, oh, well, you can be the same race in different colors. There's enough variation, right? Or like my mother is, is much, much lighter skinned than my father. And, you know, people in the United States, like just like their, their, their friends and family, like mostly Bengalis, but sometimes other South Asians do would joke that they were in an interracial relationship, you know, and it was, it was in a joking way, but like, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All South Asians know this. Like you can't, I mean, there are black Brahmins and there are very light-skinned Dalits. Now there's average differences between the groups, but there are differences, you know, that are consistent and there are overlaps as well. And the differences present within the family. And um, the reason you see patterns uh, like what you're talking about, Freddie Mercury, is for example, um, imagine that you have like all these genetic variants um, within one parent and the other parent, and they both come out to be like, say, like medium brown, but they have some variants that are also light and some variants that are black because there's no, there's no gene in there. There's no genetic variant that's like brown. Brown is actually the outcome of mixing all these different variants together. Okay. Uh, and so okay. every generation, there's this like shaking, mixing process of random sorting. And the highest likelihood is it'll come out similar to the parents. But a lot of the time, it'll come out darker or lighter because it's somewhat random, you know? And Europeans don't understand this with skin color, but they do understand it with hair color. Now, hair color is mm -hmm. controlled by fewer genes, so it's simpler. And eye color is controlled by even fewer genes, so it's, it's even simpler. And it's like this, you know, it's not a quantitative trait quite. But, um, you know, if you don't have that much pigmentation variation in skin, you don't have a good intuition. But I think you know, South Asians or like Brazilians, you see within the family, the whole full range in, in rare cases, the full range within the population, more often you see subtle differences, right? Um, even if the parents mm, are same. Mm. And so basically, I mean, as a geneticist, I, I think it's, it's, it's careful. I'm careful to say the way I say this, but you know, in animal breeding or plant breeding, you see the hybrids do not breed true. And that's, that's partly because like with hybridization, you have all these mixes and you, you're not guaranteed that you're going to get a mix. You have no genetic if, – if the parents have no genetic variation, the children are not going to be any different than the parents. But if the parents have genetic variation, the children are not guaranteed to have the exact same genetic variation of the parents. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And so that's why you're seeing these cases. Now, with you – so let's think you have, you have a brown father. He's on, on the darker side for a Parsi. As I've told you, Parsis are about 75% Persian. Um, from Khorasan and about 25% Guju, you know, just genetically. Okay. Mm, mm. So, you know, but 
the average Parsi is going to look like an Iranian, but a touch darker. But, you know, some of them are going to look totally Iranian. And some of them are going to look, yeah. you know, half Indian. They're going to look like Pakistanis or something. I don't know. They're going to look like Sindhis. I don't know, you know? So, you yeah. know, your, yeah. your father has these variants that are somewhat light and somewhat dark. And every time he produces a child, he's going to contribute one of the two variants because everyone has two gene copies, two alleles. He could contribute a light one or a dark one, a light one or a dark one. So what if he contributed just a bunch of light ones in a row randomly? A child's going to mm. turn really light, you know, because he didn't contribute any of his dark ones. He's a brown guy who has a lot of mixture within him, right? So, I mean, like, mm, mm. I can give you, like, concrete. Like, I have all my children genotyped, and I know all the pigmentation loci and stuff like that. So, you know, um, my two sons have much lighter hair than my daughter. Well, I happen to know a gene that's really correlated with light hair in Northern Europeans. They got it from my wife, who has one copy of the dark and the light. And the light variant is very rare in Northern Europe. It's, like, 20%. Right. Most people actually don't. Mm -hmm. Most people in Northern Europe don't have it. My wife, you know, and she was, you know, her hair's gotten darker, like, uh, but she was blonde. And so now, like, she has one copy that's uh, that's light carrying or that, that, that's like with lighter hair, one carry that's darker hair. She contributed her darker hair copy to my daughter. She has darker hair. Mm. And it's not it's still not black because mm. there's other genes that are involved. It's still brown. My two sons, though, um, they have noticeably lighter hair. Um, you know, they have, you know, when they're really young, they have dirty blonde hair. And it's because they have this gene, right? And so it's a, it's a it's a random random process of these sampling and these variations, and it's coming together every single child, every single generation. Now, if you don't have the variation, like if you're if you're Sudanese, you're not going to think about it this way, at least for skin color. You might think about it for something else. So among East Asians, um, they definitely don't think about it in terms of hair because everyone's got black straight hair, you know. But there are people in Europe that have curlier hair and people have straighter hair. So it's not surprising that sometimes a curly-haired kid comes out or, you know, parents with like a mix of hair types come out with a range of, of hair types. And with the eye colors, we know the recessive dominant expression, these things we know intuitively, right? So, I mean, that's the genetics of it. We, we kind of understand how that's happening. What's going on with the psychology and when you're saying they look more European? I think one of the issues here is um, genetically, from what I had just said earlier, Indians are about like, they're like half European and half non-European, okay, ancestrally. Like they're half mm. like Europeans. They're half West Eurasian. What I, what, I, what I need to technically say is they're half West Eurasian, half non-West Eurasian. Now, it varies. If you're a Dalit from Tamil Nadu, like you might be 30% West Eurasian and 70% um, non-West Eurasian. If you are a Lohana from Sindh, you're 70%. West Eurasian and 30% non-West Eurasian. But everyone's a mixture. Everyone in South Asia, um, and to some extent, a lot of the Pashtuns in Southern Afghanistan have this non-West Eurasian. And then everybody also from like, you know, Dalits in Tamil Nadu to, you know, Kashmiri Pandits, they have, they have the West Eurasian. The Pandits also have some non-West Eurasian, right? And so like all these groups are mixing. And so when you like, when you, when you um, have a child with a West Eurasian, and it could be a Turkish person, an Iranian person, you know, it could be, it could be a Swedish person, whatever. Um, you're contributing these different like physical characteristics on these set of genes that are very salient to people. Like nose shape um, is controlled by like you know dozens of genes. Skin color by like you know ten to fifty. All this stuff. It's all segregating and sampling out, right? Um, if you contribute the genes that are, are inherited from West Eurasians, so I mean, I, I we already talked about skin color, but let's talk about like say. Mm, um, mm. you know, I don't honestly, like, I haven't seen that many brown people in my life, but I've seen some half brown people where it's like, oh, they got brown face. 
and I don't mean their face is brown skin. They got brown face. Like they got the nose, you know, they got some, they got some issues with their faces where it's just like, yeah, they're South Asian ancestry. I mean, I can see it, you know? Well, I mean, that's because like they inherited those alleles from their South Asian parent, but there's other people you don't see it at all. You know, I don't think like looking at your, your picture, I don't really see any Iranian or like, you know, parse, you know what I'm saying? I don't see that. Like you just look like a generic white person to me. Right. Um, so my, one of my sons, I'll tell you, like I have a friend, she's from Germany. Um, she, she immigrated when she was 10. She grew up in a German speaking household and she looked at my son and she's, she said, he looks German, you know? And what she meant Mm. is Germans have a specific, they have specific facial features. Like white Americans in particular are not very good about this because they're just mixed in a lot of ways, but different Europeans are like, Oh, you got a French face. Oh, you definitely look Finnish, not Swedish. They know these things, right? She looked at his face Mm. and he's just Mm. like, she's like, he looks German, you know, now skin's a little darker because he's tanned, you know, but like his, his face, I mean, honestly, like my middle son in particular, I look at his face and I'm just like, that guy is white. And not like he's actually the darkest in color, but like his features are just very, very middle European. I don't know why, but they are, you know, um, he does not look facially like me. There's some things about him. Like you could point to his ears. You can point to all things. You're like, oh, that's like your dad. That's like your dad. But like it all comes together in a way like whatever part of me that shares ancestry with the people in the middle of Europe, that went to him. And, and, mm. and I can tell you, I can also tell you, um, since I have like done detailed analysis, his, um, his, what is it? His, like one of his great grandmothers on his mother's side is Norwegian. So he should be genetically 12.5% Norwegian. He's closer to 20%. So he got more of the Norwegian ancestry as opposed to like the French and the German and the other things. My other two kids, they're close to 12.5% Norwegian. Okay. So like you see this variance mm. within a family. And, like, if you have the genotypes, you can actually analyze it. I have. And, like, it turns out my son, I could say, like, he has Nordic phrase. There's something about him, like, in his features. And it turns out he is actually more Norwegian, you know? My other kids, they have more generic looking. I mean, they still look, you know, they look white. But I'm just saying, like, they, like I've never had, like, a German person come up to me and be like, your son looks German. What's up with that? You know? That's what my friend was saying. Like, your son looks real. Because he knew that, like, my wife was white. Or she knew my wife was white. But. It's a little strange to have a half brown kid that looks like that, I guess, psychologically, to mm, an average mm, American, right? Mm. Or a German or a European. Now, the psychology part is I think um, – so brown people are very varied. I feel like, yeah, there are some things distinctive about brown people. But you know, like when it comes to Africans, okay, like they have particular hair structure, you know, facial features, hair form. East Asians have the eyes and you know straight hair. Europeans are like super white, whatever, like kind of like big noses, pink. I don't know. With South Asians, yeah, we're brown. That's our primary thing. We're brown. If the kids don't turn out super brown, they've just lost the distinctive South Asian thing. Okay, there are people mm-hmm. like you know, like I, I like I have like I. I was in um, Florence once and I saw a um, two people of, of brown heritage, you know, and my wife was just like saying, I was like, oh, the Indian tourists, there's a lot of Chinese tourists around. And uh, she's like, no, the way he walks, he's American. And so I just wanted to like, you know, confirm this hypothesis. So I walk up to him, I like tap him on the shoulder, he turns around and I, I look at him and, I'm, and I say, are you an Iyer? And he's, he's, and he speaks with a, you know, clear American accent. Yeah. How'd you know that? And I'm like, your face. And I walked off, but it's because there's a certain <laughs> face that I years have certain facial features. Right. But that's not, 
a distinctive South Asian face. That's distinctive to Ayers. I've had people come up to me and ask me if I'm Bengali. I don't know why, but they, they can intuit something about my facial features because I'm not distinctively light or dark for South Asian, but they can tell something about my facial features. But like, again, being Bengali is not quote unquote Indian. Indians are lots of different things. And so the thing that unites us is we're kind of brown. And so when you're saying like half Indian children, if they're not too brown, they've just lost, I think, the primary thing in the psychology of how we identify South Asians. And sometimes mm. if you see someone from Brazil or maybe some like, you know, person from Mexico, sometimes Indian people, like my mom, when she, you know, growing up in the United States, there weren't too many brown people. She would approach someone, maybe they were Brazilian or from some parts of Latin America, they kind of looked Indian and she'd just be like, are you Indian? And they'd be like, no. And they would be like, yeah, people ask me that all the time. And, you know, it's just, they just happen to look Indian. You know, I had a uh, acquaintance once who was Sicilian with olive skin and people would ask her if she was Punjabi, if she was Sikh, you know, because she looked like a Punjabi. So, I mean, one time I was in Italy um, and I saw a girl at a restaurant and I just assumed she had to be Punjabi. And uh, my wife was like, no, no, she's... And like, so she walked by and my wife can speak Italian. She's like, she has a Pugliese accent. So she's from like Puglia in the far South of Italy. She's just happened to be an Italian with like dark skin, you know, that happens, you know? So I think like when you're talking mm-hmm. about like the way things, way we perceive them are different from the way they are underlyingly. So like that Italian woman, yeah, she looked kind of Punjabi, but if you look at her jeans, if you look at all of her jeans, she'd be South Italian. She'd be European. Right. Um, and if you look at like, um, if you look at a, like say a blue eyed, Kashmiri and there are you know people meet some they look white you look at them genetically you're like oh 20% of your ancestry is definitely not West Eurasian just like that really brown-skinned I don't know like Khatri you know so it's Mm -hmm. like there's there's Mm -hmm. a disjunction between ancestry and um what you look like because what you look like and how you're perceived is a matter of psychology and it's cueing in on these very salient characteristics so my children are half South Asian now, since I'm 15% East Asian, they're a little different than other South Asian Bengalis. They're half South Asian. They've been genotyped. Like people always joke to me, like, "Are you sure they're your kids?" And I'm like, "Well, since they were genotyped, yes, I'm quite sure." You know, um, but uh, there's there's no denying that. And yet, when I look at them, I know that people are not going to perceive them as brown. Now, there are other South Asian people, half South Asian people that you know they've met, or and like they look more Indian. And that causes differences in how people perceive them and how people treat them. Sometimes from like the Indian parent, they're just like, you know, you know, they'll be like, what's up with your kids, man? And I'm like, it's genetics. <laughs> you know, I mean, it doesn't matter. It's all kind of in fun and games. Like it's not like a life or death thing today where it's like, oh, mm-hmm, like the brown. Mm-hmm. Cause like there were instances during the Eurasians in South in India during the 19th century where the brown one was like kept in India and the white looking one was sent to Europe. You know, like I have a friend who's a geneticist and he found out, his family found out without, they didn't know. Turns out that he, that his like great, great, great grandmother was Indian and, and, um, they never, like his, his great, great, great grandfather was an officer of the Indian army. They sent the kid back to Europe and it was just quote unquote lost in the family lore that this kid was half Indian. He obviously looked white enough that he just probably said he was dark Welsh. I don't know. You know? So, um, you know, I, I think like here we're seeing culture, psychology, um, you know, like my daughter's really into being, I mean, she knows she calls herself tan because 
you know, she knows she's not like, I mean, she's not as white as obviously my wife, but she's definitely not brown like me. So she knows that, but she knows what her background is. But in terms of like, you know, she'll go up to, you know, like brown kids, she'll be like, my dad's brown. And they'll be like, you're weird. You know, like in terms of like, one, they're skeptical until they see me. And two, they're like, why does that matter? But you know, my daughter's, she thinks it makes her special. And it does make her special in a way, you know? So I mean, that, I mean, you know, the future is like filled with a lot of these kids and they're just trying to like, figure out their way in the world i don't think it's going to be that big of a deal it's not that um that i don't know it's not that far of um a stretch that like this is like something that would make her distinct like she was she was watching something on tv and there were a lot of kids of various mixed race or not mixed races but various kids of different races and she asked my wife where are the mixed kids you know that's Mm. that's what she identifies Mm. as right um so like you have a situation where i think like you know, like like you, you're white presenting. Um, you obviously like are very into your Indian Parsi background. I don't think anyone's like, oh, like you shouldn't do that. Like, if, you know, you make your choice of like how you live your life. Like, you know, my kids, like I don't care if like they allow people to think they're white. I don't, to me, it's not like it's their choice. They do what they want to. I think like it's not going to matter that much. But I mean, I do know that, um, you know, my sons are not going to have to deal with you know, I didn't deal with a lot of racism, but I dealt with some racism. I'm a brown kid. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just goes with the territory. Mm, mm. They're never going to have to, like, deal with that. No one's going to, like, you know, tell them to go back to Iraq or whatever. You know? They don't look like they're from right. Iraq. I mean, mostly, like, you know, one of my sons get like you know gets compliments like, wow, dude, you look like a surfer. Just because his hair is not that dark, but his skin is tan. You know, like, he gets compliments mm, on his physical mm. appearance. So, um you know, I think, the, you know, yeah, I mean, in my case, I think it's, it has some disadvantages in that I have a lot of people um, doubting my parentage. Yes. You know, I have a lot of people telling me, you can't be half Indian, you know, I don't believe you. Wait, are, they, are these Indian? Are and these Indians or non-Indians? No, non-Indians. So Indians hmm. seem to be quite willing to accept this. So if I tell Indians that I have an Indian father, even if I don't tell them my father was Parsi, which makes obviously a bit of difference to the phenotype. Yeah. Um, even if I don't tell them that, they're immediately like, okay. You know, it, um, all of the Indians seem to have no um, doubts about this at all. Sure, sure. Um, and even when I had just arrived in India and I looked very pale and I looked completely like a white European person, they assumed I was white. But as soon as I told them my dad was Indian. Yeah. Yeah. They were all like, you know, they, uh, you know, some people are much nicer to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know? Just, uh, I mean, I don't mean friends, but I mean, in kind of casual encounters, um, okay. the person serving me in a cafe mm-hmm. or something like that, you know, when I got into conversation with people and they were instantly accepting, there was not a kind of moment of double take at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did find that a lot of, not a lot. So one always uh, there's this availability heuristic mm. which happens with negative events mm-hmm. that when people say things to you that hurt your feelings, you remember those things and you magnify them and you multiply them in your mind. Oh, sure, sure. So I think actually it was only a few people, but it's felt like a lot. Mm. Well, so let, <laughs> but um, yeah, let me. Get, it was always very, yeah, no, uh, very no, politically yeah. correct people, mm-hmm. I think, okay. you know, who are really, for whom. Um, races a political issue yeah i see and they don't they're very uncomfortable with this idea of just having the genetic inheritance without um 
without, I guess, any of the um, physical man- physical manifestation, of without what they any think- of the physical yeah, manifestations, yeah. and without any of the kind of exposure to racism, well, yeah, without any of the disadvantages, it's like you have this, and it's a kind of exotic thing, but you're not paying your dues by having well, people well, be no, racist. No, they, you, 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 There's an art. You have bl- yeah. you have you have blood in the game, but you don't have skin in the game. Right. right. That's a that's a great way of putting I it. Mean, I'm going to use that. Well, cuz like I mean I don't you know. So let me like offer like a hypothesis and I I've, I've thought about this cuz I I've, I've read about about. So I think in a lot of ways um let's call let's call it Baozu, you know, instead of SJW, the Baozu um you know, like white left uh framework of race of white supremacy and 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 post-colonialism and all that. I feel like it's an inversion of um older white supremacist narratives where it's like uh, the West and the rest and like white and everybody else. And so, um, you know, there was an older model in America, we call it hypodescent for like black Americans, where if you have one drop of black blood, you're black, these sorts of things. And then um, this was based on an idea called the law of reversion, which is like when you have mixing between peoples, um, the offspring revert to the nature of the lower, lower individual on the great chain of being basically. So if you like mix a black person with a white person, the child is black. If you mix a child that's half black and half white with a person that's white, the child is black. Okay. And so you extrapolate this to other non-white peoples. And it was, although not, not nearly as strongly, but it was, you know, the, the one drop rule. And so like, this is in people's mind, I think. And also um, if you're raised in a white environment, people in other other cultures like for example um south asians are very diverse in pigmentation but white people kind of a lot of times and not out of any racism they, they just think they all look brown light brown dark mm-hmm. brown it's all brown you know what i'm saying um i've had i've had like um east asian acquaintances you know international people and like you know they can't tell white people apart and i'm like that person has light brown hair and that person has dark brown hair but they're not used to actually looking mm. at someone's hair to make that determination. Okay. Right. They're used to looking yeah. at it and they're like, Oh, that person's got blue eyes, big nose, and they're red faced. Like they look the same. Okay. Me, like I grew up in the United States with mostly white people. Like I know how to tell white people apart. It's just like, you know, it's the way I grew up. Right. I'm probably not as good. I'm going to be honest about telling brown people apart. I only brown people I know are like my family and like friends I've met as adults. Right. So I think like, uh, I do have really bad problems with bold men. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, the hair, right? Yeah. So I obviously rely on hair a lot, yeah. at least when I'm telling white people apart. Yes. White bald men in their kind of forties, early fifties. Yes. I find it really hard to tell them apart, mm-hmm. even even when they look quite similar. If you put them side by side. Yep. Yep. And I had a sort of embarrassing experience um, a couple of years ago where I was invited to um, a Christmas dinner. And there was a woman there and she was, uh, you know, I have a close friend who I know very well, who I've stayed at her home. um, And she is Russian, slender, in her early 50s and has curly brown hair and wears glasses. And this woman was also Russian, slender in her early 50s with curly brown hair and glasses. And I just could not tell <laughs> if it was my friend or not. Yes. And I just didn't know how to behave towards her. And I felt really awkward and strange. Mm-hmm. And I um, managed to excuse myself for the dinner. And I went down to my Facebook to look up my friend's 
picture on Facebook. And when I saw her picture, she didn't look anything like this woman. I mean, she shared these traits, ah. but her features didn't look anything like this woman's features. Yes. It was bizarre. But I had clearly made some categorization yep. in, my, in my brain, um, which I was using to recognize her, because I guess I don't know that many Russians who have exactly, you know, have, I don't know that many people who have all of these characteristics. Yes, yes, yes. The Russian is, of course, the voice, the accent. Um, like, we're, we're talking about gestalt psychology now and like how you perceive things and how your mind can play tricks. And now you have, you know, schematic schemas to like integrate things in, right? And I think, you know, you you condition things on certain inputs and certain contexts and, and certain environments. I mean, like, look, when my children were born... Um, you know, especially my sons, people will be like, oh my God, he looks just like you. And I'm like, one, he's a shriveled up newborn. They all look the same, you know, or they look very similar. <laughs> <laughs> Two, uh, they're pink and they have blue eyes. I mean, it's just, they don't look that much like me, okay? There's nothing like distinctive about them that are like, oh, that's like Razit. Their hair is not even that dark. You know, they're they're only, well, actually they're dark when they're born. But then, anyway, like, you know, it's, it's just interesting because I've seen like, how people like some people are just like yeah they don't look like you they're like really honest some people try like well you know and i'm like you don't have to like i don't like ultimately like my relationship to my children is not conditional on what they look like it's just conditional on me being their dad you know that's it right like everything else is commentary as hello would say i'm gonna i'm gonna return to the bohemian rhapsody film for a moment even though i'm at the risk of losing all of my followers and listeners <laughs> for to this obsession uh it will be temporary but um I was quite interested in this regard by how few people remarked on the color of Rami Malek's eyes. Mm. So um, Rami Malek, who plays Freddie Mercury in the film, has blue eyes, blue-gray eyes. And uh, he has a cat allergy. um, And because his eyes were really irritated by the scenes in which he had to... um, which had cats present, you know, there are a few scenes with where he's acting with cats because Freddie Mercury was a crazy allurophile. Um, and because um, Malik has a cat allergy, he found it too uncomfortable to wear the contacts in those scenes. And therefore, of course, because you can't change eye color midway through the film, mm-hmm. he didn't wear tinted contacts at all in the film. Yeah, And I I heard criticisms of absolutely every aspect of the film from, you know, his mustache chronologies were inaccurate <laughs> to, you know, um, you know his parting was in the wrong place and when he was recording some film or whatever, he's wearing the wrong T-shirt. But absolutely nobody mentioned the eyes and I was very surprised by that because my experience on the first viewing of the film um, was that... Uh, I mean, in the first moments of the film, the film begins with um, with Freddie, with Rami as Freddie in bed asleep, and the camera pans over his body and then up to the face, and he opens one eye, and you have a big close up taking up most of the screen mm. of the eye of this blue eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was, and I had a moment of of sort of shock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And. Uh, no one else seems to have noticed it. It's very, it's interesting to me. I think that there's enough kind of, I guess, schemata there. Mm. And also, you know, that he is playing that person. So you're not looking for discrepancies. But it's interesting to me that nobody remarked upon the eyes. Um, Part of it is Freddie Mercury was de-ethnicized 
perhaps self-consciously, mm, but also the mm. public perception. So it, I think it takes mental effort to think of him as, as Indian, even if he's quote unquote white presenting. So it's totally fine that he has blue eyes because he's, he, right. he's, he's, he's an English singer. Right. Of course. I immediately think of him as Parsi yes. first. Yes. And I have never seen a Parsi with uh, blue eyes. Um, I mean, I have green eyes, but I'm half European. Yes, yes, um, yes. And so you have like facts to refute, refute what's like coming in, you know, through your eyes. And so it's very jarring to you. But most people don't think of him as non-white. They think of him as English. English people have blue eyes. So it just all makes sense. Even if his parents look Indian, mm. so just ignore that. Just be like, oh, well, you know, whatever. You know, you, you'll, you'll kind of like shave off certain things, not focus on certain things. So I, I, I saw, I read that part, and I, I was like, yeah, like I think I would have noticed it. I very, I key in on eye color partly because I'm a geneticist, and I think we're just interested in this. So I saw like a, I saw a painting of Darwin once where he had brown eyes, and I was like, I think he has blue eyes, and I, I double checked, said blue gray. So it's like for me, like I think like get the eye color right, like it's not that difficult. It's a very simple trait, and also it's very salient. It's something you notice about people. Um, and so I think like, you know, I mean, well, especially if they have lighter eyes, you know, depending on the cultural context I have, um, it depends on the cultural context too, because like I've, you know, I, I've been to like Finland and, um, their brown eyes are very rare. And so if you have a brown eyed person, you try to figure out like why that person had brown eyes. Like, like a common thing is like, oh, well, their like great, great grandmother was Sami was, you know, a lab, something like that. Like I was on a, I watched, um, I watched people coming off a ferry once in, uh, in central Finland, South central Finland. And I counted 28 people and all of them had blue eyes. The same in Iceland. Yes, it's very, very high. And the vast majority of Mesolithic hunter-gatherers in Europe, they had, I mean, there's some of them that had dark eyes, but the vast majority of them had blue eyes. People in Spain that were hunter-gatherers, the vast majority of them had blue eyes. So the eye color has gotten way darker in the last in the last like 8,000 years in Spain just because the farmers came in and a lot, most of them were darker-eyed and stuff like that. So it's just interesting how... Things have changed over time and space, and yet we're rearranging a lot of the same characteristics, and yet some of the characteristics are different. And so um, it's, it's just interesting to think about how it intersects with our culture, which is like a macro social thing, and then how it also intersects with our psychology. Um, and so, like, I've been um, there was actually a review paper on pigmentation that came out that was really good a couple of days ago. It's on my blog if people want to read my review. And um, it took me to a paper on Indian pigmentation. And so that's one reason I, I knew it pretty well. But and then I eventually like went to like another paper, which is the social science of Indian pigmentation. And um, to make a long story short, uh, the author concludes that perhaps uh, dark skinned actresses in the Indian in Bollywood are going to change the perception of um, of darker skinned people. I don't know Bollywood. I looked up these actresses. They were light skinned. They were not dark skinned. Yes. So mm. I don't like this person mm. is saying mm. that they're dark skinned and I'm like, this person is light brown. They have hazel eyes. Um, I'm not good with like actress names, but I think like Kajol is one of them. I understand that like in Bollywood, she's dark, but like she's way lighter than most South Asians. Right. Like, I mean, I haven't been to India, but I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, it, it, this is like, yeah. it's, it's, like yeah. it's like a mental delusion to like, you know what I'm saying? I was like, factually, it doesn't make any sense. Like, you're trying to like write a paper about factual stuff, and then you're naming people who are light skinned as dark skinned just because in Bollywood you have to be Kapoor light to be light skinned. You know? I think you have to be um, very light skinned if you're a woman. So there are some darker skinned male actors in Bollywood. Yes. 
Um, yes. But the women are mostly lighter skinned. And I think many of the men are also lighter skinned. And I think that's one reason why so many Pakistani actors are popular and successful in Bollywood, because they have a lighter phenotype. Yes, um, yes. Which conforms better to the kind of Bollywood uh, sort of stereotype. And I, I, when I went to buy face cream in India, mm-hmm. um, I could, I had real problems finding a moisturizer which wasn't also lightening. You know, absolutely, oh. there was like an entire wall of moisturizers, and almost every one of them said, "You know, fair and lovely will whiten your skin, will lighten your skin, will leave you." Mm-hmm. You know, they actually had before and after pictures, even which had mm-hmm. obviously just been photoshopped. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think that most of these creams have any effect. I'm sure the ones that do are very unhealthy, but um, you know, they would show a woman um, darker and then lighter after using the cream was extraordinary um yeah yeah i mean it's um it's 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 a world that i can't really understand i mean in america we have our issues but that is not an issue that we have I, and i'm really glad for it um i think a lot of you know brown americans are really glad for it because i mean i don't know like going outside and playing sports and i've had female friends and like their their mothers get angry and you know they're just like okay like we're brown that's how we are, and um, I mean, you know what I'm saying. It's like it's like yeah. the cultural the cultural yeah. toolkit. The cultural toolkit in um, South Asia does not translate here, where it's like a person with light skin, like how they have pink skin. Okay, mm-hmm. if your skin is light brown, that is not light skin. You know, so mm-hmm. I mean, like the whole terminology, and you know, I've talked to um, I've talked to. Uh, women like not too many but like some like recently like i started like thinking about it more because i i mean it's someone you know i don't want to say who it is but um anyways like it was a big issue for her growing up and um i was frankly a little shocked again i'm a male it's not as big of a deal um i think but um you know like just like stuff from the parents and stuff from people and people who come from south asia they still bring those attitudes and it's just it doesn't make any sense like i i do feel like um, it's also you know what what is being demanded as the kind of ideal is a really strange ideal because it's not that you should look European, actual kind of Caucasian looking. I don't know if Caucasian is a good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I see what you're saying. You shouldn't actually look pink like a European person. You want to look recognizably Indian, but as light as possible. So it's like, it's a very narrow band of where the ideal is. Yeah. Yeah. The way I think about this um, is, um, you know, I think like the ideal is looking Iranian for for South Asians. That might be like wrong, but that's the way I mm, think about mm. it. Um, it's just like you look, you kind of have like sharp, like you know those those sharp features and like dark hair and dark eyes, but like your skin is kind of like a brunette, brunette like maybe mild tan. Um, which like you know there's there's South Asians that lot of South Asians that look like that. It's not like unachievable. So I think that that's that that's my perception of the ideal. To me, right, that's a very right. dark look actually. But that's because I grew up in an area that was predominantly German and English and Scandinavian. You know, so when people are saying like, "Oh, that person's mm. light," I'm like, mm. um, "In what world?" I mean, you know, it's just like I, I can't relate to that. Um, which is fine. Like I don't. If I if I was from South Asia, like I'd have different views. Like I'd grow up differently. I understand that. But I'm not. And like, you know, living in the United States, you have 
different struggles. And this is just like something that I wish that um, sometimes immigrants, including my parents, my parents aren't that bad about it, but um, immigrants and like people who come here in, in an older age, they could just move past because like those cognitive modules that you developed for like fine graded distinctions and for like mocking someone or putting them down because they're a little darker, it doesn't matter here, right? When the crackers be coming for you, it doesn't matter that you're lighter, you know? That's the way I'd explain it to you. Like, they're not going to be like, well, actually, yeah. you know, they're a few shades lighter. I shouldn't punch them as hard. It's just like, that's, that's not, not going to be what's going to be happening here. Like, you have to, like, adapt and understand that you look just like that gala person to people that are judging you. Okay? Just, that's how it is. You know? Like, you live in the society. You live in this. It's like yeah, me. It's I'm 5'8". Okay. Um, my parents, I'm the tallest one in my family. And I'm tall for for like you know going to, if I go to Bangladesh I'm tall right, um, but I grew up to be I'm I grow up I grew up as a guy that was shorter than average like living in the Pacific Northwest, you know where people tend to be tall. So I understand that in my my family's cultural context like you know oh I'm like long and lean but you know I'm not stupid like I'm kind of short in the United States you know. And it's fine. Like I can like integrate. I can like I can walk mm -hmm. walk and chew gum at the same time. That's fine. Like stuff like with skin color, all of these other. You know, I mean, I, I was telling a friend of mine. Um, I get sick of like anthropologists explaining how like oh they know all this shit about other cultures. And I'm like, dude, I grew up an immigrant. Like I had to flip between cultures constantly. I have plenty of field work. Trust me. Like I have m way more field work than you've ever had. You know. Um, you didn't have a mom who was of a different culture than you. I had a mom who was a different, I mean, still have a mom who's a different culture than me. So like this, like, you know, as like diasporic people, like that's my life. Um, and, you know, it's just like, I take it for granted, but it's also like gives me some, I think like ways to understand, um, you know, other people. And like I said, I didn't grow up around a lot of Indian, like, you know, like I say Indian American, like for me, like I'm not, my parents aren't very nationalistic. Like I'll say Indian, South Asian, whatever you want me to say. I don't need to say Bangladesh. My parents didn't live in Bangladesh for much of their lives. You know, they lived the most of their lives in the United States, some and then the second most in Pakistan. You know, for Bangladesh, they didn't live there very long at all. So um, in any case, like I can relate in some ways as an adult meeting them like, oh, we had some of the same experiences. Like I didn't grow up with any brown people, but like we actually grew up the same way, you know, and that's a, that's a different experience than Indians have. It's also a different experience. My age, I'm Gen X. It's totally different than like some people that grew up in Cupertino in the 2000s, where most people or like everyone they hung out with was was brown American. They have a whole different thing. Like there's a, there's a huge sociological um, analysis that you can do of like all these different generations. Because those of us that grew up in the 70s and 80s, we have a totally different experience than the kids that grew up in the 90s and the 2000s. Like we didn't, you know, we didn't see brown people on TV except if they like wore a turban or were from India. Like there was no like you know, there were no like Aziz Ansari's or other just, you couldn't just be brown and just be a regular person on TV. You had to be some exotic thing. So we didn't have that experience. It was like, you know, we had to like always figure that sort of stuff out. The young kids, they have a totally different um, understanding and perception. And so like, it's interesting to see how like that changes really quick. We were just some transient generation and, um, you know, our time shall pass too. I, I do think, um, you know, this is where I depart from, uh, many of my fellow sort of critis critics of the social justice left is that I do think mm. representation is important. So just the, it's not the be all and end all and it can be exaggerated, 
But I feel it is important to just see people who look like you mm. in a variety mm. of different positions. Yeah, and I see. I can see where fields. Just the actual representation in itself does good. So, for example, even though um, people at the moment are very pessimistic about the situation in the U.S., nevertheless, uh, you know, yeah. regard with regards to racism, nevertheless, I feel that just. Mm. Having Obama in the White House was mm. uh, did good in that regard. I don't really have a quantifiable mm -hmm. way of 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 showing this, but I feel that I, who have not known a lot of African Americans in my life, because I haven't spent that much time in the states, and when I lived in the states, I lived most of the time. I lived in the states. I was um, in mm. um, in the Upper Midwest in a super, super white area. And, you know, I felt that, for example, um, my boyfriend, my then boyfriend, when I was mm, living, I lived in St. Paul, Minnesota. Yep, indeed. <laughs> I can't do American accents, but that's, that's good. Um, and he lived in an area called the Phillips in Minneapolis, which was I think one of the roughest or perhaps the roughest area, um, people were always concerned when I told them I was going to visit them. They were like, make sure all your car doors are locked. Don't stop at a red light. You know, Don't stop at the stop sign. Just drive on through. Um, and there were quite a few mm. um, police sirens. Uh, once uh, one of our windows was broken in a drive-by shooting and across, and we also saw a lot of people driving up in taxis and buying drugs from mm. within the kind of backseat of the taxi. People would come up, approach and sell them drugs. So it was kind of a rough area. And that area was, um, I don't know what percentage, but at least in our road, uh, there were many African-Americans. And at, at the same time at the college where I taught, there were very few African-Americans, very few African-American students, and so much so that people would say, the black student, mm. and you knew who they were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there would sure. be only one sure. who was known to us in our department. And, um, and we, but I had an African-American colleague, and he was an extremely, um, extremely urbane, sophisticated, intellectual, um, and also a wonderful guy. And even though I wasn't, we didn't become friends, I didn't know him. He wasn't one of my colleagues whom I happened to have a lot of dealings with professionally, and we didn't become socially friends by coincidence. But I still felt as though somehow it must have been good for me psychologically to just at least have mm. this guy in my life um, who was a black guy, but who mm. was from mm -hmm. my kind of world who I could relate to because otherwise all the black people I saw were in the Phillips and I was um, a little nervous of them, not because they were black, but because this was the Phillips, which mm -hmm. was, you know, a really rough yeah. area. Yeah. I was well, nervous of everybody who was there. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say that because like, I'm going to like switch it from race because, um, you know, I identify as a conservative, right? So in academia, though, in academia, that's a um, – the issue is, like, there are conservatives in academia, but a lot of them – especially well, so 
you know, I'm not in the social sciences or humanities, so it's not like you even talk about social things. But so like, let's say in genetics, like, okay, I know there are, I know some conservative, I know some Republican geneticists, nobody else knows who they are, because they're not going to out themselves. And I know a lot of people who are more centrist, a lot more, they're not going to out themselves, okay, because not even because it's going to be bad, but they don't want to be perceived a certain way and have people talk about them. And, you know, mm. it's just like a lot of baggage because there's certain stereotypes. Well, there's certain stereotypes because they don't meet any conservatives that are out. Like some people will just straight up lie, but a lot of people will just kind of evade and not say. And so like, you know, everyone you encounter. So I'll give you like an example. Like I, um, I don't put conservative anymore on my like uh, Twitter, Twitter bio, because um, one reason is people thought I was being ironic. Like they, they, they thought it was a joke. <laughs> and, like geneticists. Like there were people like, oh, I didn't really understand that. I thought it was like just a joke. And I was like, okay. And so there's one person. I'm not really much of a social conservative, but there's one person that I know who is a social conservative. And so I was talking to this person and we we're just talking about politics and being like, you know, heterodox in academia, like politically. And I was like, you know, like, you know, I'm conservative, right? They were just like, you know you know, yeah, I didn't really know. And I'm like, yeah, but I have conservative on my bio. And they were just like, yeah, I don't know. I, just, I think I just thought it was a joke. And then I'm like, yeah, but I would retweet National Review sometimes. And they're like, yeah, I didn't know what to think about that. <laughs> now, this is a statistical geneticist, but their model of other geneticists, even though they themselves are conservative, was so, so liberal that they refused to take the input <laughs> that I put conservative in my bio, that I would retweet conservative things. <laughs> It just they just they just assumed it was some weird anomaly, okay? Um, and so when it comes to representation, like one reason I, I do speak up is because um, you know I want people to know that not everyone agrees with them. You know, there's a lot of people. I get a lot of direct messages from people who are like angry about something, and they can't say it on pub in public because then they would out themselves as not along with the crowd of everybody else. You know. And um, I'm definitely, I don't care. I have a very peculiar personality. I don't care, you know? I'll go at people. Like, I'm not, like, I'm not shy. Um, I don't I don't get scared easily. Um, you know, I, I grew up as, like, you were saying, like, oh, the black student. Like, I grew up as the brown kid in my county, okay? So, um, like, I'm okay with being a minority. I have been my whole life, you know? May I ask how old you are? So I can I'm 40. You're 40, okay. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. Like so, I can, just so I can place it in terms of years. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in the Reagan era, you know, as a kid, and then in the 1990s. So I've like experienced America as a change. So one thing is you're talking about like how like racism has changed and everything like this. Um, America's a lot less racist than it was in the 1980s. I just know because I experienced a lot less racism. Unless I became whiter, I don't know, you know? Um, I had people ask me probably every week uh, in my life in the 1980s, um, how it came to be that I spoke English without an accent. Mm. Maybe you maybe know. you have become lighter. You should lay off the pumpkin spice lattes. No, I don't drink lattes. I mean, I own black coffee only. Oh, so, okay. I mean, so yeah, exactly. That yeah, that's not it. Uh, that's not it. No, <laughs> no. So, and you know, uh, in the 1990s, there was still some stuff, but it, it's actually decayed. It's like, so like when, when my liberal friends on Facebook were like, oh my God, like every, it's so, everyone's so racist now because Trump won. And I'm just like, you don't really know, unless you yourself are racist, you probably don't know what racism is. You know? I mean, maybe you're married to a non-white person, then you have some skin in the game. Then you see. Like, I dated a girl in college once, and we were just, like, you know, in her car, and, like, some guy, like, on a bike, 
leaned in and yelled a racial slur and rode off. And she was like shocked that something like that would happen. I shrugged it off. Mm. Okay. Mm. But, but she had never seen anything like that because she had never been dating a non-white person, you know? So, I mean, you, you know, you can have these interactions with people and then you see it and you're like, oh, or it's like, you know, like if you, you know, have a relationship with a woman and she's had, she's experienced sexual assault. Okay. You weren't there. Cause if you were there, hopefully it wouldn't have happened. But as a man that like hits you really deeply because you're just like these, this, this is a thing that happens to real people. It's not a statistic. It's not a story in the newspaper. It's someone, you know, and care about. Right. And so, um, you know, I, I do think like going back to the politics part, I mean, conservatives are 50% of the American population, but a lot of my academic friends think that they're animals that should be, no, I mean, I don't know. But I mean, I'm just saying like, one reason I'm right wing and I'm conservative is like, I, I, I don't want to get sent to the gulag, like the thought police and all these things, you know, like I know you and Helen and, um, you know, the other, uh, the other guys, um, Lindsay, you know, um, and, uh, Bog, I don't know how to say the name, Peter, whatever. Um, you know, you get attacked and like, obviously you're center left. Right. But at the end of the day, like when they come for you, who's going to have your back, mm, you know, mm. like there's going to be people that are like, well, you know, I secretly agree with them, which is totally true. There's plenty of people that like direct message me that are liberal that you would probably, well, I mean, you, they're in science Twitter, so I'm not sure if you follow them, but in any case that are like, yeah, I totally think that they're right, but they would never tell anybody because they don't want to get tagged as right wing. So they sympathize with you, but they're not going to put their skin on the line. They're not, I think I will. I will put my skin on the line for my friends, right? That's how, like, you know, I'm not like self-aggrandizing, but I will do it. I'm already right wing. What are you going to say that I'm a fascist? I'm right wing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I will also. I have to say that I will put my my skin on the line for my friends in the sense yeah. that if my friends say something that I really disagree with politically, yeah. Um, either from a left or a right wing perspective, it doesn't matter. Um, I will at kind of, um, at most I will scroll on past. Yeah. And sometimes I actually even like people's posts on Facebook, which I don't actually like, but I, in, in inverted commas, press the like button, mm. um, mm. just to be supportive because I what see. I'm saying is just, I hear you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, I know yeah. it's important to you to say this, and I, I hear you. Yeah. Um, I don't agree, but I'm actually not going to get into an argument um, because I value your friendship more than I more than being right about this issue. Yeah, yeah. And no. I think that I used to be a f- I, well, I am a very argumentative person, um, and I have argumentative Indian. I'm an argumentative Indian. That's a pleonasm, isn't it? <laughs> that is definitely genetic. That's definitely somewhere in the South Asian um, DNA. Um, and Parsis in particular. I have to say Parsis are the most argumentative and eccentric group that I've met ever. Um, it's really hard to... I mean, I think they're the least predictable group of people I've met. Mm. I, I can't... When I meet a Parsi, I have no idea uh, what their politics is going, likely to be. Um, most are not socially conservative, but there are a lot of fiscally conservative uh, Parsis. Um, and, but there are also some crazy social justice types among Parsis. I don't know what their politics is going to be. I don't know what their um, general demeanor is going to be. I don't know, you know um, whether they're going to be... Uh, shy or extroverted or what, but I know they're going to be eccentric. 
something about him is going to be weird. That seems to be a universal trait among Parsis is weirdness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oddballs, oddballs. Uh, outlieriness in one direction or another. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, and now I have forgotten. I have forgotten what it was that I was about to say. Oh, you're talking. Um, you, we were just talking about um, that you don't argue with your friends, and sometimes you support them if you disagree, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's also a reason why I find it. I feel it's important to speak up myself and be a strong critic of the left. Partly because I want to show people that not everyone on the left is as cr- a crazy extreme social justice type. Sure, sure. Most people. Most people aren't. It's just, it's, it, but it's the it's the the less extreme you are, the less you speak out. So you have this weird ascertainment bias. Yes, of course. And also, I want them to, I want to kind of encourage them um, to feel able to speak out because I'm here and I'm speaking out, and that gives other people permission. That's um, fair. That's fair. That's fair. As, as, yeah. as a friend, my friend uh, Tina once put it. She said, um, "Bitches afford protection." Mm. (laughs) Um, so it's a little bit of that kind of um that sort of psychology yeah well i mean it's interesting because like you know like i will defend people but i mean i also know that like i don't i don't play that same role because like i align with the right and so um you know in a way i I lack the credibility to reach to you know i have no left bona fides i'm not on the left like that's not my tribe that's not my side on the other hand um i do have you know, so most of the people I follow are actually scientists. So most of the people I follow are liberal, but you know, there's a minority of people I follow who are journalists or like think tankers that are conservative that I follow. I follow them back because I'm like, okay, like they're, they follow me because I'm a scientist who agrees with them on politics. And if there's a genetics or a science issue where I can speak with authority, I will, because they'll trust me because they know I'm not going to, I don't hate them. Right. Right. So like when the Elizabeth Warren thing came out, um, I jumped up and spoke, and I reached out to my journalism friends in conservative media, and like really tried to dampen things down because um, they knew I wasn't just lying for ideological reasons, you know. Right, right. And so that, yeah. that's what I can do, and I do try to do that, um, just as like you know, like kind of like epistemological hygiene or the ecology of ideas. Everyone plays their different role, right? And so like my role is like you know I'm. I'm far right, so you don't have to be, and like, you know, but like, you know, I'm showing you that I can be a normal person, and you can be like conservative, and and all these things, or it can be, or it can be brown, you know, like I'm a brown, atheist, conservative, okay, they do exist, Um, you know, there's others besides me, Um, and like, it's just, it's not that big of a deal, like people can like be all sorts of different things. And it's, you know, I'm a brown, conservative, atheist scientist, right? I don't think I know anybody else like that, but I I had to think about that for a while. I don't think I do know anybody else like that, but whatever. Like, it's not like crazy. Like, I don't have to deal with like, I'm not like, it's not like I I, I go through like, you know, panic about like, oh, can I be ideologically coherent? Actually, like those things don't have anything to do with each other necessarily. They're just correlated in certain ways, you know? So, I mean, it's like I've had like, uh, you know, South Asian people be like uh, Indian people be like, oh, you're atheist, you know, and, and I'm just like, yeah. And like, then they'll call me like a Muslim atheist. And I'm like, no, I'm not Muslim. Like, I'm not married to a woman who's Muslim. I don't go to Muslim community functions. I'm not part of the Muslim community. I'm not Muslim. Like, my kids are not Muslim. Um, you know what I'm saying? It's like, 
if someone converts to Christianity and they marry, they're Jewish, they convert to Christianity, marry a Christian woman and raise their kids in the church. Yeah. Their kids are like half Jewish, like genealogically, but they aren't, look, these are not Jewish Christians. You know, they're not Jews, you know, they're Christians. My kids are just like generic Americans. Um, and like, you know, that, that's just how it is. And I don't really care. I'm okay with that. Um, I don't have like a romantic attachment to Islam. Like I'm probably more in the Sarah Hyder camp. Um, you know, so, I mean, that's that. Um, and that's just how it is, but it's a little difficult for Indians sometimes. And I've talked to multiple Indians about this. I have an acquaintance who was an Indian Christian who basically, he didn't officially convert to Hinduism, but his religious practices were Hindu and he was married to a Hindu woman. And he would get annoyed when Indians would just be like, oh, but you're Christian. And he's like, yes, but I worship Vishnu. And they're like, oh, but you're Christian. And he's like, yeah, but I don't believe Jesus was God. And, you know, I read the Vedas. And they're like, oh, but you're Christian, you know? And it was just because of his background. You know, and it was really mm-hmm. frustrating. Coming to America freed him up. Because in America, you have a little bit more choice about things like that, you know? In America, like, Americans would ask, like, why is your last name Matthew? That's kind of an American name. And, like, oh, well, he would explain his family was Syrian Christian, blah, blah, blah. And they'd be like, their eyes would roll over. They have no idea what that means. They're like, okay, like, whatever, you're brand new. Do what you want to do. You know, but I mean, it's just like negotiating these things is, is, is going to interesting. Um, you know, like I generally like, uh, definitely like you guys, for example, partly because you respond to everybody. Um, you're a lot in a way you're a lot nicer than I am, but you get a lot of, a lot of flack from the left because, um, you know, people, they police what's near them. Mm, you know, yes. like I'm already among the damned. Like I have like devil horns on, <laughs> I already have devil horns on, you know, but if but you're 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 trying to tell them you're you're actually a heretic while I'm a pagan, right? Mm, so like mm. in Islam, heres, heretics were traditionally targeted way more than non-Muslims, and in Christianity, heresy was targeted a lot more. Like religious heresy was targeted way more than Jews or pagans, and it's because you're within the tribe officially, but you're actually weakening weakening the tribe, and you're actually a traitor. And so I think that's why you get you get like the attacks you get. I mean, they're ridiculous. They're ridiculous on the face of them, but it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah. because if they say it long enough, it will become true in a postmodern sense. You know, that's that, that, that's the ultimate thing that I've seen on Twitter, which is unfortunate. But if you say something enough, it will become true and um, where people will perceive it's true and like you can't like, you know, change that. Um, now, ultimately, I think there is like an empirical, you know, maybe positivist do the facts matter? Like there are people for whom facts are tools to an end. I wish they were the minority, mm-hmm. but they're actually like increasing mm-hmm. in fraction all across Western society right now. Yeah. yeah. And like, you're trying to like, you're trying to like keep the sea from rising okay, where you are. And, and I admire you for it. And I hope you do. I, I, but like, you know, if, you. If, if I, if I had to put, if I had to put like money on it, I'm skeptical. And that's why I'm saying like, you know, I got a tribe, they got my back, you know, that's where you have to be ultimately. And, um, you know, it's, it's an issue. I mean, in Indian society, like people are segmented across their communities. It's the same thing. It's a human, a human tendency. And in a way like enlightenment, Western liberalism with its emphasis on the individual and, you know, rationality and and positivism, even in the breach, but it, that was the ideal, um, was going against the current of human nature. And it created something great. Technological civilization, a consumer society, demographic transition, but maybe this is just a transition before we go back to, um, you know, the the days of yore, um, you know, the battle days, the ancient regime. You know, I hope not. Like, I'm definitely like on Pinker's side, 
But um, I don't know. Um, I think I think we need to have like a serious discussion about the possibilities and partly like, you know, some of the political things you're seeing, um, the unrest in the Western society, the rise of China. Um, it's not like the way it was in 1999, you know, in 1999, um, that was like the, be- the greatest year. The summer of 99 was the greatest year in the history of the world. You know, everyone was going to be democratic, liberal, rich, and on the internet. And mm. there was no, the, the only problem was like, you know, who the president had an affair with. That was our big problem in 1999 in the United States, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the, thinking back, it's just a joke. We don't. We have so many more problems right now. Even though we're richer than we were then, I mean, we're a little richer. I think it depends. In the United States, in the world as a whole, poverty has decreased, right? So, like, I, I don't want to. But I'm thinking about from an American perspective. We have smartphones. We have all these gadgets, and yet we're way less optimistic about the future, right? And so, I think we need to have like serious discussion about what's going on with good faith. But unfortunately, we don't have good faith in a lot of the in a lot of the situations that I can see online. I think that's a problem that you have. Um, as the problem with like, um, you know, Soko part two, like all of these hoaxes are having because, you know, people aren't having good faith. Like a lot of people, as you know, they think like all of this, like postmodernist stuff is just crap. And like, you know, people like Matthew Sears are total sophists. But on the other hand, you know, they can't say that out loud or like, you know, they don't want to be against their team. And so what ends up happening is you know, the craziest people end up dictating. So like in Pakistan, they they imprisoned a woman on false charges of blasphemy. And she didn't get killed mm-hmm. for all these years. Why didn't she get killed? Here's why I believe she didn't get killed. Most people in Pakistan know it's crazy and unjust. But they don't want to say it because they don't want to get killed as an apostate. Right. Well, you know, yes, it's the exact same. Mm. They, they, they know that it's unjust. They know what the truth is, but the truth doesn't matter. What matters is the crazy people are going to come after them if they say the truth. And obviously we're not, we're not there in the United States. But when I was, when I was a young man in 1999, I would look at other countries and be like, oh, ch- poor them. Someday they'll be like us. And now I think, well, we're kind of getting to be like them. You know, I mean, like, I don't say anti-Muslim things or anti-Islamic things on Twitter much because I don't want to get into Twitter jail because the blasphemy thing Mm. is a much bigger deal now. Like the social norms of criticizing Islam on the left in the United States are extremely strong. Richard Dawkins could not have published The God Delusion today because it's highly problematic. It doesn't acknowledge intersectionality and it's very Eurocentric. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I, I'm, I'm like saying what yes, they would say. You know, yes, they would say. That. I do. Yes. You know, that was a different time all those 12 years ago. That was a different time. Today, we live in a different age, and it's a postmodern age of reenchantment and tribalism, and um, it's depressing. Although, like you know, you always have to have hope, and you always have to fight you know, against I think it. That, so, I, I um, do think that some people, and I was talking to some friends about this recently. Um, they are so they are leftist friends. Um, who they definitely think cultural appropriation is crap, is bullshit. Um, and also, um, and you know, they're also not fond of theory, of kind of obscurantist theoretical writings. Um, they have no time for Foucault and all those kinds of that generation of theorists. Um, and they also, um, 
um, they're also really appalled by um, restrictions on free speech on campus. So they're academic yeah. friends, so they particularly know campus things. And I was telling them actually about um, Helen's visit to Portland State, which was not one of the more extreme um, responses. But, you know, some people um, destroyed sound equipment, pulled a fire alarm when there was no, you know, there was no fire just to disrupt the proceedings. And somebody was found who had a nappy full of shit, a diaper, as you Americans would say, which they're planning to throw at the speakers. Um, ah, yeah. And, That's classic Antifa behavior. Right. Um, and I, I think some of those involved were actually students rather than um, Antifa provocateurs who'd come in from in, outside, but I don't know all the details. But I was telling them that, which was one of the, which was not one of the more extreme examples, and they were really shocked. They were like, we on the left have to, you know, stand very firm against this kind of behavior that we will not tolerate this sort of thing happening on campus. So they are very much ag agree with me on those points, but they, because they believe that racism and sexism and homophobia still exist, and I also agree with them on that, they feel that they need to be allied with the social justice left because that is the only way of talking effectively about those things. And that's where I think that they are mistaken. But the yeah. difference there is clearly in strategy and not in sort of um, adherence to the doctrine. I think it's in we have lost sight of the old ways in which people used to talk about this. And we need to return to those older ways. Sure. Well, I mean, look, maybe um, you're a Girondist and the Jacobins are taking over. But what happened after the Jacobins? There was a Thermidor reaction. Mm. You know, Soviet Union spent 70, 80 years like being like at the forefront of revolution, not just economically. Like they tried to dissolve the family and do other things in the 1920s before Stalin did a, you know, counter reaction against that. But, um, you know, you had like, you know, decades of atheism, cultural leftism that was enforced by the state. Where is Russia now? Culturally, what is it like? Um, reaction can happen. And sometimes it's better. Okay? I mean, Russia today is better than it was under the communists, in my opinion. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say. People still, I mean, totalitarian, like, right-wing authoritarian regimes are still better than the totalitarianism of communism. Communism, and like, you know, my friends in science are always like, ah, oh, like, you overemphasize this. They killed 30 million people. Okay? That's a lot of people that died. Um, most it depends. Most it Russians, depends, of course, on on the right wing authoritarian regime. So here in Argentina, um, yeah, you know the worst period in our recent history was under a right wing authoritarian regime, um, a fascist regime, and uh, it was a kind of unusual type brand of fascism because fascism usually has this racial element or pseudo racial element. So you know. Fascism is about binding people together by identity. It's a it's an extreme version of identity politics, but usually it's we are the people who belong in this geographical spot because we have the correct sure, sure. ancestry. So you see that with um, the the right hand the right wing of the BJP with people like Yogi Adityanath, and you see that also. Um, uh, you know, you see that also in in Urban's Hungary, um, and but there is an the other type of fascism which is um, 
the kind of McCarthyist sort of brand of fascism where the people, the enemy, is the enemy within these communist types. Um, mm-hmm. That is really, um, I guess in South America, it's very hard to argue that any group of people are the kind of natural inheritors of the territory since yeah, yeah. Argentina. They're new, they're, they're new state. Yeah, Argentina has only existed since 18, 1814 and uh, yeah, 1812. Yeah. Um, and um, we had, uh, you know, at the peak of immigration into Argentina, which was between between the 1880s and the 1930s, so pretty recent, more than half of all Argentines had not been born in the country. Um, so, you know, the, comparison, yeah, yeah. the apt comparison is not with New York. The apt comparison is with Israel, if you look at our yeah. immigration history. So we can't fall back on this kind of blood and soil thing. And so instead there is this um, feeling that the kind of natural inheritors of the country are the right, the, the this extreme authoritarian right, and the people you, you need to flush out, exterminate, you know, are the left-wing people. And that's who are the kind of pseudo-Marxist, communist, montoneros, or whatever, however they're described. And mm-hmm. we see that rhetoric, Bolsonaro is using all of that rhetoric in yeah, Brazil. Yeah. It's not racial, yep. but it's it's still a kind of fascist rhetoric. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, Islamism to some extent. I mean, basically, like you have a corporate corporate identity that binds people together, is right? That, so, like Franco's a, a fascist um, ideology, not Islam, but Islamism. I would. Yeah, exactly. Well, because it's the Islamic nation, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's it's the idea of the Islamic nation of of the people bound together by this, like, you know, is, I mean, they don't use covenant like the Jews do, but I mean, what Israel is a highly diverse nation with like many different races among the Jews, but right wing, you know, revisionist Jew- Judaism, um, you know, people are bound together as a nation of the Jewish tribe, you know, the Jewish God. It's a very like almost bronze age thing. Right. Yeah. Um, of this like binding. I mean, India is the same. Um, yeah. I know the upper caste like dominate the BJP, but like we've already talked about the genetic diversity here. Mm. Like, I mean, what is really binding them? They're brown people that are not Muslim, that have, like, you know, certain types of, like, these indigenous religious traditions, but that's what's binding them together. So um, it, that is not that difficult. Um, groupishness is not that difficult for me to imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, that is the normal, that is the human norm. And in some ways, like, even in the United States, like, we had segregation recently. You know, we were, like, white nationalist, like, republic in much of the 19th century, although I don't think we were necessarily founded that way. Um, you know, stuff like that wanes and waxes, right? History is a process and it's about struggle um, for your values, for what you care about. I mean, me, like I care less about democracy than a lot of Americans because I think like majorities can be tyrannical. I, th- I take a more like older view of like Republican virtues are really important and that you need to balance like, you know, popular will with like individual liberties and all that stuff. And I'm really interested in Chinese history. And I think like the elites need to figure out virtue at some point and not just like efficiency and maximization of some sort of like outcome, because what does that outcome mean? I think that's why in America, we have like um, a distrust in elites, partly because they become bloodless technocrats and they utilize um, their elite status to enrich themselves and their class. 
And that obviously is going to mean that the society as a whole is going to opt out. Like think about the 2008 financial crisis and such, right? Historically, though, um, you know, sometimes elites, they've identified with the society. And that is the ideal in Chinese history where, you know, uh, the bureaucrats are supposed to maximize the well-being of people, reduce the taxes of the people. And the emperor exists like kind of to like bind heaven um, to earth, but also to be like as a focus for national identity so that the, the the true people, the farmers, they can be prosperous, right? And so I think, you know, we need um, more historical perspective and we need to think about like, what are we in this for? Like, what's important? Like for me, facts are important. My family's important. You know, I want like just some some level of stability. I understand that societies evolve and like justice is an evolving thing. But if it moves so fast in such a volatile way, all it does is just create stress, anxiety, and people are just like ultimately not happy. At the end of communism, people did have some material security, but like they were also not happy. They were paranoid. They'd withdrawn into their private lives because they were terrified of being ideologically, um, you know, ostracized for whatever reason. And we're obviously not there in the United States, but, but, and, you know, I think in a way, like I talked to my gay friends about this, being gay in the 1980s and 1990s was like, was so different than today. Like the Mm -hmm. ostracism, Mm -hmm. even today in some areas and rural areas, but I'm talking in public, like being gay was a kiss of death for a politician, for business people. You know, it was, it was looked really, really negatively. And it was because society agreed as a whole to ostracize these people. The power of majorities is terrifying. Yeah. It's terrifying. And it, and it terrorizes people and it destroys them. And I think we're losing, we're losing perspective. Like giving liberty to individual does not mean that everybody needs to be conforming. And sometimes that means that people do things that you think are just kind of wrong. You know? I mean, it's just like. That's so stupid. Why are you doing that? You're not going to be happy that way. You know what? They need to make the choice. Their community needs to make the choice. Like they need to figure it out. And sometimes you're wrong. Later you find out you're wrong. You know, like I had friends in high school who would talk about beating the crap out of gay people. And now they're proud that America has gay marriage. They were wrong. Mm, mm. You know, I don't know if that, I don't know if they had a personal, a personal transition or if like they just go with what society says the majority. Cause I didn't think it was cool that gay people were, you know, they wanted to beat up gay people in high school. I was just like, dude, leave them alone. Like it doesn't affect you. You know, that was my attitude back then. I was in the minority and now society as a whole has evolved and all the people, like there are people that I know that in high school that would literally talk to me about beating up the one out gay kid at my high school who I saw them on Facebook put like the, the rainbow flag and say they were proud to be an American because gay marriage had be, become legal. But I knew what they were saying all those years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, they probably don't remember. They probably don't remember, but I was disturbed because I was, I was like the only one that was arguing against it um, because, you know, and most people didn't want to do that, but you didn't say anything. Cause you know what? They're gay. They're queer. I mean, I don't want to beat them up, but like, you know, they're just weird. There's something wrong with them. That was like the common thing that people would say mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. in the day. And so like when someone like went out of control and started talking violently about them, you're like, not, you're not like, you're not, you don't want to talk. You don't want to like condone it. On the other hand, you're not going to put yourself out there and defend the gays. Are you going to defend the blasphemers? Like this is like in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. People don't want that woman to be killed. But like, are you going to be standing up and defending the blasphemer? No. Because at the end of the day, you kind of disagree with blasphemy too. You don't want her to be killed, but you disagree with blasphemy, so you're not going to defend someone accused of being blasphemous, 
right? And so, like, I mean, that was what I saw a lot of the time. Like, people did not want violence against, say, gay people, but they would not, def- they would not like, challenge anyone that was vigorously homophobic because, well, they were kind of homophobic too. And at the end of the day, they thought it was wrong. They can't tell you why they thought it was wrong. Sometimes it was their church, but most of the time it was just, they just thought it was wrong. Everyone understood that it was wrong. You know, there was no inner compass to most people. I think we're like that again. Okay. Um, You know, like with some of these like social issues where, you know, who's on the right side, who's on the wrong side, who's more marginalized, these like bidding wars, it's just getting out of control. People are having fatigue. Um, I hope for a Thermidorian reaction at this point, because I just want it to like stop at some point, you know, I mean, that's why I'm conservative. I'm just like, we can change society and improve it. But if you transform everything, you're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, like due process, like there are these other things that are white male constructs that turn out to be good. You know, a critique, a critique of traditional religions, they came out of the enlightenment by these racist white guys because they were racist. Voltaire was very racist, you know. Hume was somewhat racist. Kant was pretty racist. But they had some good thoughts. You know, they had some good ideas. They, they, they created some tools that are really useful for a lot of people Humboldt of whatever race they are. was definitely not racist. Um, although mm-hmm. he was also a massive misogynist. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I mean, no, he, that, that's part of the issue. Like, no one's perfect. I mean, you know, like, um, what was yeah, it like? Samuel uh, Carl- Johnson was also very, he was very opposed to slavery and he adopted yes. a black, so he adopted his black servant as his son. Um, sure. And, but he was a reactionary too. Yeah, he was a conservative. He was a conservative. Like yeah. everything, everything is really confused. Compare using modern categories to define people in the past gets really confusing because who's on the side of the right and who's on the side of the wrong is not always what you would expect. So, for example, like someone in my personal experience, people that are moderately Muslim are much more racist than people that are extremely Muslim. But people that are extremely Muslim are also scary in their own way. Right, of course. <laughs> you know? Well, extremely Muslim enough, it's not a race. You know, it's a proselytizing religion. So you can yes. become Muslim, whatever your skin color, by just reciting the, the whatever it's called, the Shah. I've- Shahada. But yes. I mean, the issue is like, for example, like anti-black racism is a big thing um, among a lot of, you know, immigrant Muslims right. in the United yeah. States. Among Arabs. But also. the only, yeah, the only ones where they will rebuke people for ever saying that. And like, you can tell by their action, they are not anti-black that I saw in my, in my family's mosque as a kid were the fundamentalists mm-hmm. were like the goat bearded guys, you know, they, they, they actually believe that crazy stuff. Right. Like right. really crazy stuff. But I mean, they were, they were so believing that crazy stuff. They didn't even care about the prejudice that they grew up with or that their subculture espoused. They were such, such extreme people that they didn't care about social conformity. Like they told people, no, you are not racist. Sometimes you need that. Sometimes you need that. Sometimes you need not caring about social pressure. And these radical Muslims actually had that. They had that within them. And to me, that was interesting because I was always an atheist. Like I always was like, this is crazy. But it's something I observed and it's true. The, mod- the more moderate people, the more liberal people who, you know, wouldn't, their wives wouldn't have the, you know, scarf on their head and stuff like that. They were also like invariably much more racist, you know, much more bigoted than these Islamists. But. So just to, just to wrap up now, Razib, um, mm-hmm. this has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much. Um, you are my favorite kind of guest, the kind of guest where I can barely get a word in edgeways because you have, you're so excited about what you have to say. 
that is my absolute favorite type of guest <laughs> for this podcast. Um, but I'm going to wrap up now by reading a, a question uh, from one of my followers on Twitter, Orion. And Ryan asks, are we getting to any sort of definitive percentage to place on the nature versus nurture argument? What sort of societal impact will the results of IQ heritability have? I don't know if you want to, those, that's really two questions. I don't know if you want to yeah. both or just the first. I'll, 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 yeah, let me do the first. Let me do the first. So the second is like, that's a, that's a long thing. Yes, um, maybe so I should just, have yeah. you on again and we'll talk about that, about IQ heritability okay. next time. Uh, yeah. Because that's um, a lovely explosive subject. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, like, look, your listeners, like, if you're stupid, it's because you were born that way. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think they have an excuse um, now. But, okay, yes. Um, answer the first uh, question. Are we getting to any sort of definitive percentage on the nature versus nurture argument? Yeah, so um, we are, but the argument is framed weird because nature versus nurture is already – it's often dynamic, like unless it's something like the number of fingers you have, if it's a combination of nature versus nurture, the background conditions can vary a lot. So for example, in the United States, height is mostly due to your genes, the genetic variation, the heritability, because everyone has enough to eat. Now, if you go to India or if you go to sub-Saharan Africa, there are cases of malnutrition and deficiencies during essential parts of life. And so obviously nurture is going to have a huge effect, but it's not because nurture naturally has like 40% or 10%. Or 70%. Um, a lot of cases, when you have a good enough environment, all of a sudden, all that matters is nature. And so that's what we're often looking at in um, studies that are focused on Western uh, data sets. And we are getting a definitive understanding of how much of the variation is in the population right now, and how much of it is due to genes. So for example, for height, about 80 to 90% of the variation in the United States or in a European country, or in Japan, is due to the variation in the genes within the population. Um, if you're talking about something like schizophrenia, that also turns out to be about 80%, which is really high. Um, for intelligence, it's probably somewhat lower. And then it gets confusing because how you define it. And also, like with intelligence, your environmental inputs are not just nutrition. There's other things that are going on. And so um, this is always going to be a continuous question that's not definitive. But we'll get more precise understanding of how the parameters vary depending on social dynamics. So the it's, it's like you have a model and the model has elements that always are going to change depending on various circumstances, but your model is getting better and better and better. And so you're going to be able to predict things depending on the circumstances better. And so that is what we're getting a definitive thing on, not the percentage, but how you get to the percentage. Mm. Okay, great. That's an excellent answer. Razib, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, I'll see you online. Wonderful. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, 
or both on Patreon. Look for Ario, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.